Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the stacks. Uh, this is Jay. Yes, sir. Uh, oh, oh, I'm Shazra Green. Any uh, resemblance to any real podcasting hosts is uh, not intentional. Uh, we're covering this week Deranged, uh, sometimes using the subtitle Deranged Confessions of a Necrophile. <laughs> Pardon me. This movie was funnier than I thought it would be. I thought it would just be a gore fest. Well, I feel like black comedy is intrinsic to Ed Gein as well. Like it's the Midwestern humor infused with the black comedy is very essential to the character of the Midwest. Oh, for sure. Um, Yeah, now that I've seen this movie, I don't think it would work if it wasn't funny. Right. And it really captures Ed Gein. Uh, Like, uh, you know, both of us are listeners to last podcast on the left. And, uh, it, it is funny how much Roberts Blossom's portrayal of Ed Gein as Ezra Cobb, <laughs> excuse me, uh, no, no uh, intentional relation to Ed Gein, uh, in fact, even though it says at the beginning based on a true story. And even though all the promotional stuff everywhere is like, oh, this is based on Ed Gein, the, yeah. uh, the terrifying true story. Well, because it obviously is, and much more closely than pretty much all of the other things inspired by Ed Gein. But like, it's pretty foundational and like as a true crime story ed gein is so foundational to uh horror entertainment oh totally it's the origin of like uh the the buffalo bill type killer it's the origin of i guess now i'm gonna start calling it the ed gein house well yeah kind of uh and, and you have um uh, obviously texas chainsaw massacre comes out mm. later this same year Mm-hmm. And you know, right. that that one has a lot uh, of the same stuff. I mean, obviously, it is also based on Gein. Even even Strangler versus Strangler that we covered last week has a few parallels, like the uh, extremely oh. overbearing mother. Yeah, certainly intentional. I, and it's sort of uh, if you read uh, if you look at like the extra features on Strangler versus Strangler, they're all talking about how it's deliberately pulling from a lot of existing tropes for oh. uh, a lot of that stuff. Oh, interesting. So this one's a real Canucksploitation shot in Oshawa, Ontario. It feels so Canadian, but like at the same time, that's kind of Wisconsin is kind of like Canadian America is yeah, my understanding. Very similar accent, uh, like Midwest on both sides of the border doesn't have a lot of cultural differences. It's very similar. It's just the whole farm belt uh, has a similar style of humor that that just this weird gallows humor and like i know it from my relatives in saskatchewan oh yeah she she's not missing she's (laughs) in my basement uh so this is directed by alan ormsby and jeff gillen uh jeff gillen notably also played santa claus in a christmas story the the really terrifying santa claus oh cool i i still haven't seen that oh uh, I gotta watch foundational. it this year. Yeah, like it's it's one that I've literally seen every freaking year of my life. So I don't even know how to judge it as a piece of work anymore. <laughs> but it's just sort of in my consciousness. Uh, but his version of Santa Claus is just this terrifying, red-faced, 
uh, giant man who's at the top of a mountain in the department store. And he picks up the kids and screams into their face. Oh, 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 just kind of <laughs> rad. <laughs> it's kind of a little bit my memory of Santa Claus, but for some reason I was still never afraid. Right. So uh, both of these guys had previously worked together on a different Bob Clark picture. Like Bob Clark is best known now for doing a Christmas story, but he was a big Canucksploitation horror guy. Uh, he did Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, which uh, <laughs> they, they were both involved with. <laughs> oh, that's a I, mean, I love some of the titles of some of these uh, exploitation movies. Mm hmm. And of course, Black Christmas comes out a little bit after this and uh, is also Bob Clark and has a lot of the same people involved, too. Cool. Have you ever seen Black Christmas? Uh, I don't think so. Oh, fundamental. Like, it, it's kind of usually received as the original first slasher. Like, it, it is pre-Halloween, but it totally is the same slasher structure, but it's Christmas, not Halloween. Oh, cool. Yeah, and no, I, I don't think so. And it's Canadian, of course. Uh, has Margot Kidder. Oh, mm. right on. And Kira Delea from 2001. Strange movie. Oh, neat. Uh, so th this one, for whatever reason, the names and locations have been changed. <laughs> well, I think I've been thinking about this uh, because I thought it was really funny at the end when it had that that uh, disclaimer that it's like all the names and locations have been changed and everything is unintentional. And I'm just like, no, it isn't. No, it absolutely is not. It's <laughs> but, much truer to the source material than most of the other versions like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Psycho, despite having obvious similarities. Mm -hmm. I, I, I kind of think the reason is so that if it later comes out that they did get something wrong or, or that, you know, the the sex scene wasn't like that or whatever, they can say, oh, no, we were just making a fictional movie. We're just inspired by Ed Gein. We're not trying I, to slander anyone that actually real. I don't really feel like it's a, a well, like it, it is basically legal boilerplate to an extent, but it's also a thing where this movie just isn't uh, all that concerned with telling the true story it's using the true story as sort of a framework to tell a much more specific story that kind of explains him in a different way and gets the important stuff right but sort of really ties everything too closely together yeah yeah i didn't get a chance to listen to all of uh the last podcast on the left epi episodes on ed Gein, but i don't think the seance scene happened no, the that whole first kill is completely invented for this movie. Oh, right, because so, she killed the bartender first, right? Yeah, the, the bartender was definitely the first one. Uh, and, and there's just two confirmed kills known. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, it's playing a lot with the stuff. And, you know, it gets Mama right, but maybe it kind of <laughs> uh, streamlines his intentions too much. <laughs> yeah, his... The whole thing about him trying to Frankenstein his mother back to life, I, I don't think that's what he was really. I don't think he had anywhere near of a anywhere near as clear of a goal as that. Well, he kind of did have a pretty specific goal, but it was different from that. He wanted to build a lady suit that he could wear. Oh, OK, which he does end up actually doing that in the movie, but they don't really talk about it. Yeah, he does a bit of that. Uh, we, we mainly get the leather face thing where he's wearing other faces, uh, but you know, iconic. 
Yeah, yeah. This is more like trying to revive Mama as more more of a horror movie motivation. Yeah, not really accurate to anything really going on in the movie. And I guess also this is going to be a thing that's a big inspiration for Friday the 13th Part 2, where we introduce Jason, who's also got his mother's severed head in his shack and so forth. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen Part 2. I've only seen one and Manhattan in 2009. Yeah. We'll I'll have to go through all those. They oh, are yeah. all kind of a blast. Uh, this one is it's really it's weird how it uses the atmosphere the the opening titles have that just low atonal electronic hum over just the snowy empty farm with the the equipment the that's just sort of rusty and abandoned as you were talking about the credits just blood red yeah why is rusted abandoned farm equipment so much creepier than like say I don't know, rusted, abandoned um, shopping carts, for example. Well, I would say to some extent, probably because you're not from farmland. So it's it's also kind of alien, right? It's it's not something that you have a lot of experience of working on a farm, right? Good point. It just looks like a bunch of blades and wheels and, yeah. and stabby things to me. I mean, that shit is super dangerous, and, uh, you know, people working the farm life uh, know that you can get really fucking chewed up by that stuff very easily. That, that whereas a shopping cart, you, you might you might dent your car if one's going down in a parking lot, and you're not <laughs> supposed to go down a hill with them, but it's not inherently dangerous. Things are more heavily safety-proofed in an urban setting where you just have such a much larger concentration of humanity in one place. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I think is most fun about this movie is Tom Sims. <laughs> oh, who plays Ezra? No, no, Tom or... Sims. I'm a newspaper columnist. Oh, oh, him. The, the, <laughs> My uh, name the... is Tom Sims. <laughs> <laughs> the narrator who walks into the scene or sometimes he's always there and the camera just pads over to him. It never gets old. So good. He's it's like this framing device where the movie is a documentary or a reenactment of the true events where there's just sometimes in the actual scene, our guy, Tom Sims, he just like steps out from behind a gravestone or something. He's like, <laughs> hi there. I'd like to talk to you about Geico. <laughs> I'm like, what, what, what's going on? Or he'll just get up from the bottom, from below the camera view in uh, Ezra's mother's room and say, he was a deviant. He was deranged. And she, he should have been played. Please. Ezra's just, you can see him in the background just looking at him, giving up these looks. Like he's in the scene. He should have been played by Harold Schechter. <laughs> he should have. Uh, so he, in his first appearance, he's almost playing the role of a classic horror host, like an old school uh, William Castle type uh, promotion where the guy's out front being it's like, OK, you, you better watch out because the events have been recreated in detail. Nothing has been left to the imagination. Uh, I was thinking of the Twilight Zone guy, actually. Rod Serling, yeah, it's got a bit of Rod Serling to it too. Who's c- kind of like the classic TV version of that. Mm. Uh, so he he introduces our main guy, Ezra Cobb, or Ez for short. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds he close. Exactly. He's very close. He looks exactly like I imagined that Ed Gein would look. 
Yeah, Robert Blossom is perfect as the character. He's really good. And uh, the 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 really wild thing is knowing, you know, having listened to the last podcast series is uh, the way Henry and the way Robert Blossom do the sort of scream laugh that he has is very similar and both very chilling but funny. <laughs> I, I don't think I did it right, but you know. Uh, something like that but uh so he is described as a murderer grave robber necrophiliac perhaps perhaps <laughs> actually yeah unconfirmed i believe yeah yeah i mean in a technical sense i i believe based on just the description dsm4 of necrophiliac he would be because he was really obsessed with dead bodies and and really love just playing with them all the time so that would alone qualify him as a necrophiliac uh, i believe questionable whether he was sexually interested in the bodies yeah it's hard to say it could it really could go either way i think right uh, so he is described they they give him an interesting title that i don't think is a real one but the butcher of woodside <laughs> yeah well yeah, I mean they changed the name of the town. Yeah. But I don't yeah, I don't think I don't think he was called that actually. No, but I don't know. I wasn't alive. No, I, I think uh the I like I don't know where Woodside is, but I, I think this place is I think he was Stevens Point? No. I don't know. Plainsville? Plainsfield. Plain... Butcher of yeah, Plainsfield. Butcher of Plainsfield is what it is, yeah. So it catches up kind of early on with him, or sorry, rather late. Uh, we we don't really have any of his uh, home life prior to uh, the mother having a stroke, or it's just him and the mom. Yeah, but the one seed we get of the mother tells us everything we need to know. Yeah, I, I, it's it's just interesting that we don't have any of the intimations of him perhaps having killed his brother, which is kind of suspected. Oh, uh, yeah, the brothers, he's not even mentioned in this. No, and just the the father and uh, all of the weird relationship there. The, there. There's really none of that background. We It's kind of just focused. It's, it's streamlined down to just Ed and his mom. Because mm-hmm. he has devoted his entire life to her once she's had the stroke. And it's not unlike uh, the the situation between... Uh, what is his, was his name? Uh, Paramitic. Paramitic in, in. If that's uh, who we're thinking of. Yes. Paramitic in Strangler versus Strangler. Very, very similar. Seems the less contentious. That, yeah, <laughs> a little bit. So we're, we're introduced to him making her soup. Uh, that's what he's doing for a while. We, we see him carefully making this pea soup and she's really obviously dying. Mm-hmm. Well, she even says like, "Oh, as I- I'm gonna like accidentally switch back and forth between Ed and Ez a lot. Uh, I'm not doing it on purpose, oh, it doesn't but matter. I don't think I'll stop. It doesn't matter. They're uh, the same. It's referring to the same person. Yeah. Oh, as I'm dying, I'm going to die by the end of this conversation. Yeah. He says, "I'm dying. That's all there is to it." Yeah. Oh, uh, Mama, you can't be dying. <laughs> right. And he, she gives him. One lady who she can or who Ed can call uh, who who's trustworthy. You got to call Maureen Selby. Why is she trustworthy? 
Because <laughs> she's fat, a big heifer, <laughs> that's why. <laughs> no explanation given for why that makes her trustworthy. It's just how it is. Because she's not, like, hot, I, I guess. That, that's the, the idea, you know, uh, skinny women just want to take your money. Because uh, he, it's immediately there that she goes into the rant that kills her. <laughs> oh, yeah, she just goes off quoting Bible verse and Bible women are harlots and they will you're a handsome boy Ed and they'll be drawn to you and he just raised eyebrow like they will yeah there there is a moment where uh she says oh as you're such a babe in the woods a child and it cuts to Robert's blossoms just wizened gray at the temple's face <laughs> Like he he looks like an old prospector at every moment in this movie. <laughs> yeah, I I can't get a feeling for what his age is supposed to be, because he he calls his buddy sir, uh, even though his buddy looks way younger than him, but says they're the same age. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> like, uh, I think he's like forty here. I think so. It's just he's it's those country miles, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, his face does a lot of work uh, acting wise. Holy shit. Oh, Robert's Blossom is legitimately excellent in the role. Like he is very, very good. Uh, the the other line that you're talking about was uh, you have great attraction to the opposite sex and it cuts to his just prospector face like, <laughs> like oh <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right, nodding yeah good uh, and and basically she has a heart attack while she's yelling about filthy black sold sluts with pus filled sores <laughs> <laughs> the mother really was like this exactly yes. like this oh yeah or at least th- this is how she is uh, described by Ed I suppose this is oh. how he saw her Right, because well, who yeah. else was alive to 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 talk to people about it afterwards? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, so she says, some money stealing bitch is gonna come along to try to take advantage of you. And I mean, to be fair, she does kind of have to worry about someone taking advantage of as he's very taken advantageable. <laughs> yeah, I wonder who raised him up to be that way. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that <laughs> happened. Yeah, weird. Uh, and and she's. She's looking forward to the next great flood. Just like I, I can't wait for God to just kill everybody because I, I, they're all bad. Uh, society has failed. Does Ez have money for people to take advantage of him for? Not really. It doesn't I doesn't mean, really seem like it. He he has this shack. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I I'm not really sure what it is he's supposed to have. There might be like money hidden away somewhere. Oh, yeah. There's money in the some equivalent of banana stand. I got nothing. There's they they, they don't got nothing. They uh, nothing. So the, the, the big line and it recurs because, you know, even as she's saying it, he's mouthing along to her is the wages of sin are gonorrhea and death. Death. <laughs> this will come back again and again. Yeah. And she is having a heart attack saying all of this stuff like she's gotten really worked up she's having a heart attack and he's like okay you need to calm down mama eat some of this pea soup (laughs) this okay so this is the this just set the tone for the whole movie for me because i knew 
that he was going to try to feed her the soup while she was dying and like be like, mama, eat the soup and get better. Mm. And I thought it would be like a funny scene, like, I don't know, um, Lion King or whatever, where it's like, daddy, get up. Or he would have just pathos to it of just like uh, him not realizing that she has died, but there's no way he can miss it. Yeah, what really happens, he does, as I as I was expecting, try to force feed her the soup. <laughs> and she just blurbles it out, like spits it out, and then just like starts choking and spitting out blood and soup. Well, she coughs up and it's just this huge gout of red paint, like that harsh red paint. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh gross uh intense like it it really gets you right at the beginning like okay this is going to go hard all the time yeah i was my exact reaction was oh my god you didn't need to go this hard but i'm glad you did yeah it's like this is pure exploitation we're not going to uh skimp on it when it when he said earlier that nothing has been left to the imagination he was telling the truth That Tom Sims is an upstanding fella. <laughs> so uh, there's the funeral where only two other people show up. And I guess that makes sense because we learn later that, has no, that Ez has no idea what uh, an obituary is. So <laughs> he couldn't have <laughs> notified anyone. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, I like the funeral scene. It's all just uh, like he's not saying anything and it's all shot from the back of their heads with uh, the coffin front and center and they're just talking like, Oh, she was a good woman and all that. And he's just kind of like, not really reacting. He's just between the two of them. They're talking over him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that. It's all like just one long shot. Did there was no cuts or anything. I I thought that was a cool scene. Mm -hmm. And they, they kind of settle ultimately on, you know, basic platitude of, Oh, you'd think she was just asleep. And as finally perks up, it's like she is. That's it. Just asleep. I'm like, oh, yeah, I could work um, with that. <laughs> and of course, these these poor Wisconsinites are like, oh, bless your heart, or is it bless your heart up there? I don't know. That's one of them. That one that one fits. Yeah, they're like, oh, poor as he just slow boy just doesn't quite know. Which, you know, to be fair, is basically true. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. He's he's devious son of a bitch, though. So uh, we, we cut to a year later and Tom Sims is reporting in the graveyard because <laughs> uh, as is there uh, leaving flowers at the grave. Uh, he's visiting like five times a week. Yeah. And we get this stuff that this is something that is totally fictional because they're saying he carefully maintains the room. Uh, with like, he has a stove running in it. He cleans it every day. He keeps it perfectly tidy and exactly intact. Uh, whereas in reality, he just locked the room and never went in it again. Which is another way of keeping it perfectly intact in his mind. Yeah, he's keeping it perfectly intact only within his own mind. It's uh, not something he's going to actually provide any upkeep for because that's not really possible for him. Yeah, he... It's not that he's lazy. It's just that he can't he can't really do it. Just like the larger taxidermy plot being him trying to rebuild Mama, which I kind of want to see uh, cyber. 
deranged to cyberspace where uh, he <laughs> rebuilds Mama into a Terminator or something. That would be kind of rad. The wages of sin are gonorrhea <laughs> and death. I'm real glad you're back, Mama. She she would like go on a, a crusade against sex workers or something, and uh, you'd have to get I don't know uh, someone cool to come in and just like take her down with a rocket launcher or something. Female prisoner Scorpion could do it. <laughs> but I, I'm trying to think of who could contemporarily do it and would be at like a low budget enough level oh. that it works. I mean, you could probably still get Wings Hauser to do it, and that would be kind of oh, rad. Yeah, he could do it. Um, Steven Seagal, but it wouldn't be cool. I don't know if Steven Seagal is uh, allowed to be in films anymore. <laughs> that <guy laughs> sucks. I think he might live in Russia now or something. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, right. That whole thing. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. So uh, we, we, we get some stuff about how, well, he's a little eccentric, maybe. And, and I'm immediately flashing back to the podcast. It's like a bit of an oddball. <laughs> <laughs> we get a zoom in over his whole house and how he's just let everything go to shit. It's so gross. Uh Lots of adventure magazines, which we know is a true fact about him, that he was obsessed with these men's adventure pulp magazines of the 50s, which were really fucking twisted. Lots of uh, open cans and baked beans on the floor encounters. Pork and beans. Nothing but. Also also a true fact. Yeah. Uh, And he's just sleeping on a bare mattress in the kitchen. (laughs) Probably a true fact. Yeah, I think that is reasonably accurate because we know he was not using the bedroom that that belonged to Mama. Oh yeah, he 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 didn't use that. He didn't go in there. No, and it, it mentions that he does work occasionally as a handyman and babysitter, just doing odd jobs. Because you know, oddball to do odd jobs. Yep, yep. He's he, he's kind of like one of those town mascots. Is the impression I get. Yeah, like, uh, if you're the, oh, that's all Ed. Yeah, I mean, the, the, there's everybody has some local oddball. It's just, I, I guess at that point, people weren't aware that they might be killing people. Where I, I feel like people now are more aware that like maybe you look at that person first. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Because this was Ed. shocking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the Ed Gein story was shocking when it came out. When it came oh, yeah. to light. Oh, absolutely foundational. It is kind of the the birth of modern true crime uh, fixation. The, the whole serial killer cycle kind of comes out of this because it wasn't really that much of a thing uh, prior to this. It, they existed throughout history, but they were harder to document. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess there were more um like in like the 60s and 70s there's some theories about that but (laughs) yeah well i i fully subscribe to the idea that it's the uh leaded gasoline thing Mm. (laughs) probably because it does seem to be just a huge spike in violence just almost apocalyptic the in new york especially just this huge huge spike which has been on decline pretty much ever since i think we maybe saw another spike up again just in the last two years, but that's because society has kind of gone fucking insane at times recently. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> so Mama says to him, if you miss me so much, why don't you bring me home? 
yeah, he's having this whole conversation with her while the camera is panning. When he gets to his face, he's doing the voice of Mama. Of course he is. And he goes immediately. He's like, yep, I'm going to go dig Mama up. We see him opening up the grave. Yep. Uh, she looks pristine and perfect, and he's holding her hand. <laughs> yeah, because he, he imagines she's alive down there. Like, he opens it up, and she's like, oh, Ed, you've come to get me and bring me home. And it's it's like this wonderful reunion for a moment. But he's holding a skeleton head. Oh, oh it comes right off. The bottom <laughs> half of her arms snaps off. Like, oh. You knew it was coming, and you still love to see it. And then one of my absolute favorite sequences in the whole movie is him driving her home where he just has her riding shotgun, her one year <laughs> old corpse, uh, while he loudly sings the girl of my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> it gets pulled over. Well, and he does that laugh where it kind of turns into a cry. He's doing the singing and like, <laughs> and yeah, he gets pulled over. His sirens, the, they uh, they come in. He covers up Mama with a blanket, uh, but because he was speeding, of course. Yeah, he's he so was, excited. Well, yeah, he's he's got to get Mama home. She's been away from her home for a year. That's the longest they've ever been apart. And before uh, the the cop says anything, he's like, well, she wanted to come home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the cop just kind of like just passes over what he said. Like, OK, that's just him being an oddball. Yeah, well, it's uh, the whole interaction is him just overlooking everything because it's like, oh, it stinks like hell in this truck. What do you got in there? There's something really rotten. It's like, oh, yeah, a, a hog got butchered is all. oh yeah the sheriff's like incredible reaction like jesus christ god damn it is and he's just shouting like god damn it reeks man what are you doing yeah god damn what you been drinking (laughs) as uh yeah and he's just I, I I love the wording of it that it's hog got butchered is all <laughs> obviously not anything related to him. It's just, well, he happens to have this hog that was dead. Yeah. Where'd the <laughs> hog come from? How did it get butchered? Who cares? Oh, it's the Midwest. It's like, well, I, I don't need to follow this uh, path of uh, inquiry any further. This makes perfect sense. You, there was a hog that was butchered. I'm familiar with this situation. Oh, yeah. Just, just get rid of it, man. It stinks. Yeah, and like, Jesus, God. So he gets back to the house, and it's him carrying her in like a bride. (laughs) I'm sorry I called you a hog, Mama. (laughs) And there's just this low organ sound the whole time, kind of like a parody of the wedding march, as he's, like, bringing her in as the bride and walking her (laughs) over uh, the, uh, the, the doorway. And uh, she's really decomposed. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, uh, well, I mean, her arm came right off. Uh, her face. Actually, her face looks better than I expected it to be. Because they have to have it be an actress sometimes, I guess. So they, they had to sort of keep that part sort of functional. So she's just really blue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Uh, and and he gives her a bell so that she can ring it to get his attention. <laughs> yep. And this is one where we pan out to the hallway and there's Tom Sims. He just <laughs> happens to be hanging out. <laughs> yeah, this is the one where I was mentioning he calls as all these names and just looks at him like, hey. Yeah. And and he's also describing all of the attempts to rebuild Mama. We We sort of go into a rebuilding Mama montage. Uh, and at first it's just him trying all sorts of random shit like fish scale until it's, it wasn't till later using real flesh occurred to him. (laughs) (laughs) And we get that incredible scene. And I love all of the scenes where he's hanging out with his friend and their family. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) This one's the one where he finds out about the death of old Miss Johnson. Yeah, and he it's here where he learns what an obituary is. It's like, it's such an incredible slow burn, because they're talking about Miss Johnson being dead for like a solid five minutes while he's sitting there staring at his plate, being completely oblivious to the entire conversation. Oh, yeah, and then he's like, Miss Johnson died? Yeah, and uh, his friend shows him the obituary, and it's like, they put her in the paper just because she's dead? <laughs> yeah, it's an obituary. That's what they do. It's so perfect. He's like, wait, you mean there's a list here in the newspaper of everybody who's died and where you can, where they're buried and where you can find them? This is really useful information. <laughs> yeah, you mean I can find out where and when someone been buried? This here could be real valuable information. Yep. <laughs> real valuable and just i i love how hilarious him just speaking exactly what he's doing to people all the time constantly works <laughs> yeah like he even goes on here it's like well i wouldn't take the whole thing just what i needed yeah you know maybe a a spare head some extra flesh <laughs> like oh as that's gross is <laughs> like uh, my dog is <laughs> part husky uh so they they ask him yeah are you planning to dig them up he says oh wouldn't have to dig them all up just take the parts you need for repairs <laughs> <laughs> for repairs that's why he says it right <laughs> yeah and just everybody laughs like oh that's pretty funny as you you, you got kind of a uh uh, dark sense of humor. <laughs> He's a real character, that is. <laughs> Nobody thinks to ask him, like, what do you mean repairs? Yeah, repairs, you say. Like, oh, you know, you might need a spare head. Maybe. And then it cuts to later that night, him POV from the grave. Hi, Miss Johnson, remember me? <laughs> <laughs> so he just takes the head. And this is maybe the grossest sequence in this movie. This is a very intense effect. Oh, with the spoon. The yeah. spoon. He has the skull on a platter. Yeah. Uh, or, or no, just the, the whole head on a platter in the kitchen. Yeah, he's, he's scooping the eyes out with a spoon. Ugh, and just like black goo coming out from the eye holes. Mm. It's very <laughs> realistic. It's quite impressive effect for like 74. When gore effects were pretty primitive. It's so gross. 
And then uh, he like but he saws through the skull cap. He starts scooping out the brain. Just with some spoon again. Just like a <laughs> teaspoon. It's yeah, taken te- forever. <laughs> yep. Arts and crafts time with Ezra Cobb. He removes the whole face so he can put it over his, and we see him do that. And he's like, oh, look at this. <laughs> Getting a play leather face for a bit. You can be a leather face too. There are no accidents, just happy little mistakes. Yeah. So Ez starts patching up Mama with some of the bits, getting her face a little bit fixed up with some pieces of this face. It doesn't actually look any better. No, well, it looks a little bit more complete because there's, you know, some patches. Mm, Yeah. And he brings the skull in on a platter and is like, Mama, I've brought you a visitor. Uh, I was expecting him to start, like, playing puppets with the skull. Well, he puts it on the bedpost, which is so fucking rock and roll. (laughs) Yeah, just staring at Mama. Uh, And Sims just comes in and sits down on the end of the bed. (laughs) (laughs) This is the one I think you're thinking of, where he's just listing all the names. Because he says, he was a ghoul, a necromaniac, a defiler of the dead. I didn't defile any dead yet. I mean, arguably, this well, is I mean, yes, literally him defiling the dead yes. just now. Yes, he uh, is. So he he goes to his friends and they have to have a man-to-man talk with him. Oh, yeah. It's time you got married. Yeah, you're really isolated and it's starting to creep everyone out. And let's be fair. <laughs> oh, I just need... You know, just what I need for spare parts, you know. <laughs> like, let's not try those jokes on your first date, but, you know, you'll, you'll find a lady. Come on. Come on, Ez. What about, oh, what's her name? Maureen something. Uh, Maureen Selby. He doesn't trust girls except Maureen, because she's fat. All right, Ez. Okay. Well, they all laugh. They're, they're like, yeah. oh, yeah, you're right. Maybe you can help her lose some weight. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you sent me a picture of it, and it is amazing. His black date suit, which I think is just the funeral suit with the straw hat. That's exactly. <laughs> uh, I, I just couldn't stop laughing when, that, when he walked in with that outfit. Like, so funny. Absolutely <laughs> tremendous date outfit for his first date in his life. Yeah, yes. <laughs> that that hat, but yeah, it's just, oh man, it's so good. And this part is pretty broad comedy, and it is fully black comedy. Like, it is totally invented for this movie, and it's goofball. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. As incredibly macabre as it is, it could fit in completely in Strangler vs. Strangler. Oh, 100%. Um yeah. <laughs> totally it's exactly the same mm-hmm. so she is totally into him right away uh and she's weird <laughs> she's a bit of an oddball <laughs> well you know uh she talks to her husband her late husband herman at, yeah which as is like i don't know she seems kind of weird well, and it's also this thing about how her or uh, Ez's mother had this long grudge against her, and she hasn't talked to her in like forty years. 
Oh yeah, yeah. Never, never find out what that's about. Well, it's also wild that on her deathbed, this is the only lady that she trusts, but she has not spoken to her in forty years. <laughs> what was this lady's life like? Um, I mean, a lot Hateful. of it was sitting. In, yeah, <laughs> yeah. A lot of it was uh, laying in bed and screaming at her kids. I guess so. Uh, Most of I, it. Yeah, I mean, some people that's the way they choose. Uh, but he tells her. Uh, uh, Maureen, I, I should note she's famously Mrs. Mac, who I think is the uh, the the den mother or whatever in the the dorm house for Black Christmas, you know, the other big one. So it's it's kind of cool that she's in both of these key early slashers because this is kind of slashery. It it, it is slashery. Um, there's there's a lower body count, and it's more about like who is he going to kill and when, as opposed to how is he going to kill this person? True. Although we do have a couple pretty strong uh, examples of a stalk and slash sequence. Uh, both of them pretty pronounced. Where It's a long stalk and slash both times. Not this one so much. <laughs> no, but, but the other two. Uh, yeah. They're, they're good sequences. They're they're very harsh. They're quite a bit elevated from uh, the real life uh, equivalents of them, at least as far as we understand them. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But they make great movie kills. Yes. So he ultimately slips that he takes care of Mama, just keeps the house in order. And like, why just today at lunch? She said, <laughs> she's like, whoa, whoa, yeah. Ez, she said that today. <laughs> Yeah, and she's like, uh, are you making fun of me? <laughs> because people always make fun of me that I'm always talking to my dead husband, Harvard. Yeah, but of course, hers is, uh, well, yeah, she's a psychotic, but a little, it's a little different than uh, Ezra's thing. It's weird because it almost does seem vaguely predatory and like not in a really bad way, but like she is obviously trying to get into his pants and she kind of doesn't have any other avenue through which to get his attention because he is an oddball. Mm-hmm. And uh, any ordinary seduction tactics would not he would just go right over his head. Yeah, I mean, most of this still goes over his head and yeah. It, I, I feel like it's not her putting on uh, any kind of scene for him. I think she does believe in this shit as well. It's clearly like a part of her whole daily day-to-day routine. It's just, uh, it, it does seem like she is elevating it, specifically trying to get with him. Oh, yeah. Like, like when he starts speaking through her. Yeah. Because <laughs> she, she decides, well, let's hold a four-way seance. We'll have everybody. You ask Mama. It's like, I'll ask her. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I gotta ask Mama first. And he does. We we get that thing, because they make plans for Thursday night, and then it cuts to him at home just eating a bucket of fried chicken and talking to Mama about fat ladies and how much he likes fat ladies. (laughs) You're right, Ma, she's real fat. I like that. Yeah, he's, he's just like gnawing on a drumstick and he's like, legs big and round like a big old drumstick <laughs> she dips into like a jar of peanut butter oh. <laughs> i guess it's the running kind 
Oh, yeah. Or I think it's like it could even be like pickle brine. I'm not sure what it was. I, I it, it did seem to be something pretty soft. But yeah, gross. He's just dipping it into something. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he's laughing about it and enjoying it. And then suddenly he gets really grim. And he's like, I'd hate to get stuck in all that fat. I better bring some protection. Oh, and he does. He does. He does. And this is where he says to Mama, he's like, well, I'm a little worried that she's not all there upstairs, though. (laughs) 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 As he's talking to the uh, freshly exhumed corpse of his mother. I'm not even sure how freshly it is at this point. The, the, the sequence of time is not clear in, in this movie. True. By the time true. we get to the second murder, uh, a lot of time has clearly passed. This place has become disgusting. Uh, yes. <laughs> so they hold the seance. Oh, yeah, they do. <laughs> uh, we have her uh, saying, Herbert, enter me, enter me. <laughs> <laughs> And the husband, or her doing the voice of the husband, is basically like, I need her to feel love again. Make love to her. Make my wife a woman again. Uh, uh, How do you mean, (laughs) sir? (laughs) (laughs) Well, like, there's a whole lead up to that, where first she's trying to soft pedal it with, like, well, the carnal aspect of our marriage is carnival. Because <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, it's just Herbert feeling that the two of them should hook up. It's not her oh, idea. Yeah. It's Herbert's idea. No, it's Herbert's idea. Just like it's mom's idea for him to kill her. Absolutely. And he starts unbuttoning her blouse or sorry, she starts un- she as Herbert starts unbuttoning yeah. her blouse. Yes, and, yes. And has him touch her breasts and they start kissing. And he's sort of into it at first. At first, but then we cut to like a flashback of Mama screaming at him. Yeah, and obviously, you know, it's it's the classic refrain of uh the wages of sin are gonorrhea and death. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, like cutting back and forth to that while they're about to have sex. And it's just this incredible scene of high. Well, her shouting, Ezra, she needs it. <laughs> Still as Herbert. <laughs> right, right. Like everybody, everybody dead is screaming at Ezra right now. Yeah. Uh, and ultimately, of course, he shoots her. So this is not a real kill. This one is completely fabricated for the movie, and it is a black comedy sequence through and through. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's him encountering like a female version of himself that is uh, not dangerous the way he is. Yes. <laughs> you know, the, the other oddball of whatever the town is. Well, it totally makes sense that they would think to... Uh, hook them up although i guess it was sort of his idea or his mom's idea somehow even though she seemed to have hated her maybe this was all mama's plan to get this woman killed after she died yeah or maybe it's like well if i just introduce him to the worst person i know he won't have sex with anybody i mean it sort of works it does he doesn't have sex that we know of that we know that we know of that we know of 
so we move on to victim number two, which is the first kind of confirmed real life one. And this one's relatively close to the true case. Uh, this is Mary Ransom in this movie uh, as the proprietor of Goldie's Pub. I think it's Mary something in the original one. Yeah. Yeah. She was 34 years old and let's face it, a little over the hill already. <laughs> it's like, ouch, Tom Sims. Please. I'm 41. I had my 41st birthday today and I'm not over the, well, I mean, I am, but that's not <laughs> I, the point. I feel extremely over the hill. <laughs> 33 is not over any hills. Not yet. No, no, truly not. Well, I mean, maybe in 1956 yeah. in uh, Wisconsin in the middle of nowhere, I could see 34 being kind of over the hill. Well, yeah, you're probably right. But she seems to have a good thing going. She's popular. Uh, and he comes in and he's never been to a bar before. Like, he, he just has no concept of socializing. <laughs> yeah, he just... What prompted him to go to this bar in the first place? Just he saw her some at some point? I think it was just he wanted to try something different. Like, he oh. he has no real way to meet people. And it sort of seems essentially that he's looking for another victim like this is him kind of becoming a serial killer where it's like well how do i meet another woman the one that my mama told me about is dealt with and now i don't know where to go next oh yeah yeah that's right the narrator even says like he starts becoming obsessed and like looking for women mm -hmm. yeah so it does make sense he'd up, end up here he just doesn't know what to do here and it's kind of kind of adorable at first Right. It seems like he's just kind of a cute, weird, elderly gentleman because uh, he orders a glass of milk first. Oh, honey, we don't have milk here. We just have alcohol. He's like, oh, well, what do you recommend? And she <laughs> suggests a whiskey sour. And he's into that. And he uh, gives her a real big tip right away. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. So I guess he has money or they have savings because I don't think they were using the money for anything. It's just them hoarding it up over years. Or maybe back then it was just easier to have money. <clears throat> well, kind of to, to an extent that it was just kind of easier to budget it up, especially if you're just not spending it on anything. Like literally all he eats is pork and beans. That is a really cheap grocery bill, I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah. Especially if he butchers the hogs himself. Yeah, or if it just happened to be butchered, who knows? What happened? Yeah, no, he didn't butcher the hog. The hog was butchered. Yeah, uh, it's passive voice. I don't know what happened. Who could know? Not as. No. So there's that nearby drunk guy who raves about how hot Mary is, but he's old and impotent and can't do anything about it. <laughs> yeah, and she's just like, shove it. I, yeah. She's being nice to him. Because one, he's new, and two, he tips well. He tips well, and he seems pretty innocent. Like, he is not trying to be weird to her. Like, he is weird, but he's not trying to do anything with her. He seems to just be uh, pretty benevolent at this point. That's that's the thing that I like about this performance. He never seems dangerous. He's convincing. He's he's a convincing Ed Gein where he is the local oddball who everyone knows like, well, that guy's kind of just a little uh, soft in the head. We can just, uh, you know, he's he's probably not a problem to anybody. 
but maybe he kind of secretly is underneath all that. Yeah, I, I just feel like for a character like this, they're like the urge is high to go into like villainy mode, and they don't really do that here. Like he has no self awareness that what he's doing is wrong. No, and I think that does seem pretty accurate to the character of Ed Gein, who ultimately was put in a hospital instead of jail and just kind of lived his best life. <laughs> he was pretty happy in the hospital and never caused anyone a problem ever again. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, <laughs> it just goes to show that maybe if you get some people the help they need earlier in life, maybe they can be saved. I feel like in a lot of these cases, that's true. I mean, some people are just super predators, but that does not seem to be the case with Ed Gein, who just seemed to be uh, a bit of an oddball. I mean, honestly, let's say it. <laughs> just, just a dull guy who happened to grow up with a terrible mother. Yeah, I, and obviously he committed some heinous crimes, but... Well, yeah, yeah, but... Uh, he uh, could have been saved at any point. <laughs> He was aching to be saved. He was telling people about it all along, and everyone was like, ha, 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 Ed, that's so funny. You've got a very weird sense of humor. Oh, I chopped off the top of her head with a saw, and I use it as a wig now sometimes. Yeah, and the, the head is an ashtray. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> the, the top of it. Mm -hmm. So he gets incredibly plastered, because she just keeps bringing him drinks, and he's never had alcohol before, and it's just, like, joy. Pure joy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember my first time uh, drinking. Well, I remember some of my first time drinking. And uh, yeah, it was like, oh my god, where have you been all my life? And then... You know, Horrible the next day? The next day. And, uh, yeah. It yeah. Was, alcohol wasn't as good as I thought it was my first time, but you know. Yeah. I, I know that first time feeling. Right. But immediately he starts stalking her, and it's not really him coming into the bar and hanging around. It's just kind of him casing the joint outside. Yeah, like real, real creepy about it, like staring in windows and stuff. Well, it, it's interesting. It shows how immediately devious he is, that he's not going in there and getting drunk anymore. He's not going to let his guard down any further, that there is a definite premeditation to what he's doing here. Yeah, what he ends up doing is he slashes her tires. Yeah, and just waits outside in his truck for her to need a ride. Yeah, and like just the way he comes out is just so... Even after he did this, he's so innocent about it. Like, oh, do you need a lift? Yeah, uh, and he he's going to give her a lift to the station, but obviously he misses the turn quite deliberately. To her credit, she tries to avoid all of the dumb horror movie girl things that they do that get him killed. She tries to avoid all of it. She's yeah. like, no, I'm not going to go into – no, this you missed my turn. Drop me off right now. No, I'm not going to go into your house. Uh, well, he he's like, well, I have spares at my place, and you, know, you won't have to pay for them there. And he takes her to, her, to his place, and it's sort of a thing where – He's trying to get her to go in right away, and she's like, no, I will wait in the truck. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And she waits for quite a while. Yeah, uh, I like this shot of the outside of the house. It makes it look like the Evil Dead cabin with, like, the door swinging open and closed. It's creepy. Mm -hmm. uh, and finally, like, she's been in there for a while, and it's like, oh, I 
have to investigate. Yeah, because like otherwise you can't just. Uh, and yeah, it is foul in there. It has gotten bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, she finds Miss Johnson's skull. <laughs> yep. Uh, she comes across Mama's room where there's four bodies, but there's five chairs with uh, people in old lady shawls. Yeah. So a lot of these bodies, of course, were dug up off screen. He's been at this for a while at this point, I guess. Yeah, this is what I was talking about earlier, where it's sort of unclear the passage of time, because suddenly we come in here and, oh, yeah, no, he's been really busy. There's just arms on some of the walls. <laughs> yeah, oh, man, I wanted to go back into this scene, because later on, I saw one of the arms, and I'm like, how many other body parts are there? Yeah, there's a few, because... Uh, we see that Miss Johnson is being used as a bowl for all of the, the dinner rolls, <laughs> for <laughs> oh instance. Holy shit. <laughs> uh, so first she finds Mama's room and there's like the chairs with the, all of the, the corpses. But Ed is hiding or Ez is hiding amongst them, wearing one of his skin masks and dressed in a shawl. And he's just like cranking an organ and howling <laughs> all of a sudden. Like when, when she realizes it's him, she's like, <laughs> Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, that scream. And he just gets up, and I'm like, Oh, yeah, this is Texas Chainsaw right here. Right, I haven't even seen it, it, but yeah, yeah. Deranged did it first. Uh, so obviously, you know. did it before any of them. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, they're all doing Ed Gein. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, Hitchcock did it back in Psycho. There's a lot of Ed Gein in that. Oh, tr oh that's right. I so, haven't seen Psycho, but oh, that's yeah, right. You'll, you'll have to see it sometime. I gotta see it. So Mary runs, screaming, and he obviously chases her and gets her. And she <laughs> wakes up, locked in one of the closets. Uh, she's been stripped to her underwear, and she's tied. Uh, she's bound with her feet and hands. Oh, yeah. The, and he brings her to the dinner table. Right. He's got to come out and meet everybody. And he's like, I'm not going to hurt you. This is where we see that Mrs. Johnson's head is uh, full of buns, which is pretty funny. <laughs> and as just starts showing her the cool stuff that he's made out of body parts. He's like, oh, well, I don't really get to have guests very often, so I got to show you my cool shit. His uh, violin that he used, what is it, like tendons as the chords? Yeah, he says basically, well, these ain't animal guts. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> yeah, plucking it because you know yeah. Ezra has, doesn't know how to play a violin. And he's got that big femur that he has like mounted on <laughs> a, a wooden dowel so he can really use it as a beating stick. Oh, yeah, for like his drum that he used with somebody's belly skin the drum made of belly flesh and he he uh uh demonstrates his drumming with the femur <laughs> yep I, I, the the whole part especially with the accent it kept ringing with me of uh fucking red green <laughs> it's like oh, oh my god don't find your handsome they should at least find your handy <laughs> No. <laughs> you know, sinew is a good substitute for duct tape if you don't have any. Yeah. 
that doesn't make any sense. But let's pretend it does. So she convinces him ultimately to undo her hands because how else is she going to eat with him otherwise? See, yeah, I like her. She's smart. She doesn't just be a victim. Well, she tries to get out. It's completely the final girl thing in Friday the 13th, too. I feel like Friday the 13th, too, is heavily borrowing from this movie specifically. Oh, cool. So she hits him with a bottle and uh, is trying to get away, but he, he like, is chasing after her with the femur stick, which is pretty righteous and scary. Yeah, yeah. Um he hucks one he... of the dead biddies at her. <laughs> <laughs> or no, no. She throws no, she one of them th- at him. That's and right. He starts she... freaking out. Because he she then picks up Mama and throws Mama, which is, oh my God, how could you do such a thing? I mean, you are signing your death warrant. Oh yeah, yeah. Like No, you don't be rude to Mama. This is what Mama warned warned him about. So yeah, she she gets bludgeoned to death with the femur. And that's when we cut to him having another talk with his friend about, oh, how this lady is missing. And he's like, she ain't missing. I got her up my place. He really said that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And his friend is like, you need to cut out these jokes. People are starting to think you're a real weirdo. He's like, oh, oh, I'm just just having some fun is all. Just trying to get help for my psychosis. You know how it is. This is America. We don't talk about our psychoses. Oh, certainly not in the 50s, my God. Oh, God, no. So this is one of the things that kind of ties things together a little more neatly that's fictionalized, is that uh, the third victim is supposed to be dating his friend's son. Right, right, yes, and working at the hardware store. Yeah, which in reality is just the lady who ran the hardware store, who was like another lady who's the same type as his mother, uh, kind of in keeping with his M.O. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was a a mother type and like he couldn't handle how attracted to her he was or something. Something like that. Whereas this, she's, you know, a young, like 20 year old who's dating his friend's son. So it doesn't really fit. And they had this whole conversation about how she doesn't like hunting. And it sort of turns into a whole weird thing about the concept of hunting for like this last bit. Mm-hmm. Cause it has them do it. Like it's the beginning of hunting season. And it's just as lurking around the store while everybody's suiting up and getting their guns. Oh yeah. Just creeping at, at her through the window. Before he finally like goes in, he's like, I'm going to get antifreeze. <laughs> well, his friend, there, there's this really nice hunting rifle that they've got in the store that his friend's like raving about. It's like, as check this really great gun out. Look through this sight. Yeah. And of course, you know, he points it right <clears throat> at the girl's head. Yeah. He's like, yep, it's nice. All right. <laughs> and they're like, hey, come on hunting with us as like, no, no, you know, I got, I don't like that stuff. Yeah, I'm just going to stay here and look around the store some more. <laughs> <laughs> we have we have another encounter with the the dirty old man from the bar uh, who's like also a shitty customer. Mm hmm. You didn't give me the right amount to change. Yeah, he's just being fucking annoying. And meanwhile, as is taking some ammo and loading the rifle, just kind of puttering around the back of the store. He's easy to not pay attention to. Yeah, she's just doing homework or whatever. 
I think she's reading a psychology textbook or something. Oh, oh, <laughs> that's a bit of dark humor right there. Yeah. So he shoots her and then this whole next part is fictionalized as well, because I believe he just shot her and she was dead and he just took her back to the cabin. But we have this whole crazy sequence where she wakes up in the back of the truck, which is very Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's kind of how that movie ends. Oh, yeah. She she's been she didn't get killed right away. She was grazed by the bullet, I guess. Yeah. So she wakes up in the back of the truck and she runs. She she like tucks and rolls and she takes off into the woods and he has to go hunting for her. Yeah, he's like stalking her with the rifle. This this kind of reminded me of Silence of the Lambs, um, like the night vision goggles scene only. Right. No night vision goggles. Right. And of course, that also is heavily based on Ed Gein. You have mm-hmm. uh, the guy trying to build a woman's suit, the whole thing. Yeah. And we see uh, the buddy and the son very conspicuously setting up a bear trap that, ca- that the camera's going to keep cutting back to. Don't forget there's a bear trap here. Well, it's weird because it's it's not really even that long. They, they set it and then they just fucking leave immediately. It's sort of weird that they're not. Yeah, they're not monitoring it in any way. Yeah, they don't keep an eye on this trap at all. It's like, uh, all right, trap set. Let's. That's it for this weekend. Well, it is seems that like how they it should works? Been, I don't think so. And it, it also so just does not seem to make sense because they're like really close by and they don't hear any of this go down. Because it seems like it's a couple minutes after they left, and then they do hear the gunshot. Uh huh. Uh huh. Um, yeah, yeah. The camera keeps cutting back to the bear trap and seeming like it's going to be like a big part of the end of it. But she steps in the thing almost immediately. Well, it's weird because first she finds their car. Oh, yeah. So if she found their car. Because that's the weird. Th- that's the thing that I can't make sense of, because she finds their car where when they're when we have like the cutaways of them setting the trap and they're just, I guess, somewhere hunting. But then. Very shortly thereafter, she gets caught in the trap and, uh, you know, as drags her out of the bush with a chain and shoots her. And we hear them at their car hearing the gunshot. Yeah, they must have been like maybe no more than 50 feet from each other at any given time. It just doesn't make sense. It's, it, I mean, again, this is totally invented for the film, so it is a fault yeah. of the film. But yeah, it's weird. Very strange sequence. But it's exciting. It's terrifying. Oh, yeah, it's scary. It it works. And so the those two guys, they drive back to town and they find the crime scene at the hardware store. Yep. Uh, just blood. Uh, and she's gone. And the sheriff's like, well, the last people on the register were you two. And they're like, well, what about as he was going to buy that antifreeze? He was really kind of making a big show of it, honestly. <laughs> yeah. And the, the husband's like. Oh, now, Ez wouldn't do something like that. There's no way. Not this guy. No way. He's just weird. He's all that. And the cop's like, look, let's just go over there, okay? Yeah, let's tie up the loose ends. Let's just investigate the weird guy just to be sure. And we cut back to his place where he's dragging the body out into his shed and he strings that up for butchering. Like, it's him cutting her up like a deer. Yeah, yeah. or, Or like a butchered hog. Yeah, got butchered. Right. Uh, And as he's cutting into her, we have all these flashes of Mama yelling at him, as we typically do. Mm -hmm. 
the wages of sin, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, uh, gunnery and death. And uh, the the three of them arrive, uh, the son, the buddy, and the sheriff, uh, to find just a, a very good tableau of uh, their vehicle arriving. And in the open door of the shed, we see the body hanging upside down, swaying. Oh, yeah, can't, like, clearly visible from outside, cannot be missed. Uh, against, like, like, bright against the black darkness of the inside of the barn. Very well done, which is perfect in, like, the snowy ground and everything. It's very mm-hmm. creepy. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they come upon the incredible House of Horrors, which is the original House of Horrors in pop culture, in, in modern real culture. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, H.H. Uh, H. Holmes precedes this with his murder castle. Yeah, but it didn't look like a House of Horrors. No, it wasn't filled with the bodies because he was selling the bodies. <laughs> he, yeah. He, had, he was mer- mercenary about the stuff. As wanted the bodies. Oh, yeah. No, he he was he needed them for his arts and crafts. Yeah, I mean, he was a handy guy. You know, if the women don't find you handsome. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it, it it cuts to him and he's doing his laugh crying and like. <laughs> And it freeze frames on him with all the bodies. And then it just says, three days later, all the townsfolk got together and burned the Cobb farmstead to the ground. Which is not, I mean, it's a half truth. They did do that ultimately, but it was not like three days later. It was after the trial. Yeah, of course. It was uh, uh, a whole thing where they, there was an auction that was going to be held to auction all of the stuff off. And they're like, nah, nah, we're burning the whole place down. You don't get to keep any of it. I think the only thing that survived was his car, like his truck. Oh, man, auctioning off the... Yeah, it's good they didn't do that. Yeah, I don't know what exactly they would have auctioned off, but I think most of it would have been extremely macabre, and it's probably best that they didn't. Uh Uh-huh. Man, can you imagine uh, Ed Gein's belly drum just around someone has it Some... i mean th- these things do exist i mean someone may have that because that might just be in evidence somewhere you know uh it could be could be could be in like a crime museum or something and that's kind of an appropriate place for it i suppose i guess it's uh, his yeah. hard working arts and crafts are you gonna just yeah. like throw that in the garbage come on <laughs> well, yeah. you had to do some big digging for that what so for people who like what is the proper disposal method of this like in terms of respecting the dead what do you do after this has already been done to a body i don't know because i feel like a lot of this stuff just sort of ends up being kept as evidence or kind of appearing in crime museums and stuff like that uh because you know it's it's become just a weird piece of history and i i feel like especially in a case like ed gein it's kind of what makes him a little bit more sympathetic than your average serial killer is that uh, most of it was just bodies he dug up and that yeah. he's just obsessed with death. Yeah. Yeah. And and like we were saying, like he didn't even really know he was doing anything wrong. It's most of the time. I feel like he knew to a certain when he was killing someone, he knew pretty well that it was not a good thing that he was doing. And I, I don't think he was trying to hide that he was doing this stuff and that he was fully willing to be caught so that someone would help him. Yeah, that's probably it. 
that could because uh, be. he is certainly one of those cases where you know once he was caught they put him in a hospital and he was happy he was dealt with he never caused a problem to anyone ever again he got better he, I guess. Well, he got the help he needed yeah he got some help which he had never had in his life before oh yeah <laughs> yeah Oof. Uh, so that is the end of Deranged. Uh, real fucking crazy movie. Just a uh, exploitation classic. Robert's Blossom is fucking incredible in it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's all over the place. It goes from like crazy gore to like actual scary stuff to downright hilarious. Uh, I love it. It's it's super good. It's very. It's it's funny. Like it's it's surprisingly <laughs> funny, even though it is also uh, quite extreme in its horror. Uh, unsurprisingly, I believe this one is uh, one of the chief video nasties. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. That's probably not a shock. Not <laughs> really. Uh, Any time where someone is killed in uh, a way that could be easily replicated is uh, pretty commonly going to be on that list, especially from this era. Mm-hmm. Especially based on how real people actually died. Yeah, and intimations of cannibalism, that was really verboten. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre one was like one of the real... Uh, big major ones that they were very upset about, like just the title alone. And this one's similarities to Texas Chainsaw obviously would not have done it any favors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it rips. It's a really good movie. Uh, crazy fucking shit. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was in in terms of tone. I was expecting something more on the uh, more along the lines of uh, the Henry Lee Lucas movie, uh, Henry Portrait of a Killer, but. No, this is wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer is kind of unique. Uh, I, I feel like there's nothing else like that that's that fucking visceral, at least in terms of American ones. Uh, mm-hmm. there, uh, there's one angst that I've seen uh, that's a German picture that's very fucking intense. Uh, but I can't think of a lot of other ones that are sort of that tone. Right, right. Yeah, you know, neither can I, honestly. And I do feel that the black humor is really central to Ed Gein as a character and just Ed Gein as a cultural figure. Yeah, Ed Gein's the only human being who has a whole subgenre of jokes based, like regional jokes, the Geener. Like, that's incredible. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I remember that now. Yeah, I remember hearing about that. Yeah, just got to give mad respect for that. Uh, so any last thoughts before we head on to part two? Oh, well, before you end the podcast, you got it. I have no last thoughts. I got nothing. <laughs> we are back for part two, where we're talking about another day, another man, a 1966 picture from Doris Wishman. First time we've, uh, Talked about Wishman here. Well, you've mentioned her in passing, uh, but this is the first time we've That's why I say the first time we've talked Ah, about Doris ah, Wishman. Yes, this is true. Um, I do want to spend a little bit of time first, not too much, talking about uh, the other movie. Bad Girls Go to Hell. Bad Girls Go to Hell um, that you recommended I watch first while really high. And oh my God, uh, that was the right call. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A uh, real brain blast of a picture, Bad Girls Go to Hell. I, it does kind of feel to me her most 
iconic and perfect work. It's the one that really defines her. It's the one that uh, really uh, shows her aesthetic and her sensibilities to the best effect because it's so repetitive but it, it kind of just shows all of the things that she likes to do over and over again it works really well uh it has a shocking twist ending that time is a flat circle right it is lost highway uh in 1960 whatever well, she's a bad girl and she went to hell she she's not a bad girl though she's didn't really she did stupid things but she made bad decisions yes she's a bad decision making girl and it just kind of keeps uh i i feel like it's sort of metaphorical in a sense uh whereas like doris wishman is often described as anti-feminist and i think to some extent that is uh, apparent in some of her work but i feel both of these are a little bit more about holding people culpable this one for bad girls go to hell more so it's about uh this girl keeps making bad choices about the men in her life sometimes also the women in her life and she's unable to break out of the cycles of her constantly making these bad relationship decisions yeah yeah it all starts with um i felt so bad for laughing at this rape scene but the way it's shot is hilarious uh, the, the way doris wishman shoots stuff is so specific to doris wishman there's nothing else like it, it, it kind of a little bit like andy milligan who mm. has kind of a similar aesthetic he's like the gay long island really far horror version of wishman and even lower budget arguably yeah the uh, <laughs> the camera work in this is literally all over the place uh, <laughs> very tactile the the especially in uh another day another man <laughs> where it's like it feels like a lot of it is probably just behind the scenes footage from the other two movies <laughs> it's like they were goofing off on set so it was fine that the camera dove directly into that guy's butt <laughs> yeah or the camera just do, does like these fast zoom in and zoom out of of the girl's boobs while they're having a serious well serious for these films conversation yeah I, and some of that's just in the regular movie too but a, a lot of it feels like they were goofing around and it feels like someone uh, obviously dubbed in and post-dub says to her you know you're not going to use that in a movie right <laughs> <laughs> that's just us goofing around these are bloopers they go on the blooper reel <laughs> well i've made blooper reel the movie uh that that is a good description of another day another man in a <laughs> weird sort of sense too yeah but in uh bad girls go to hell the camera is just flying all over the place uh during the rape scene it's like looking up and down doing a hard zoom on one particular stair on the staircase um her facial expressions are hilarious uh well like uh, one of the big things with all of the cutaways is you can't be looking at the people talking and saying things because they're not recording any of that sound. So it's like the more we're looking at it, the more we're going to notice it. So it's like, Hey, what are, what's she looking at? And like, Oh, she's just looking at that stare. Cause there's nothing else to look at. Cause it's just a really terrifying situation, but you don't get it expressed in the sense that it feels like a terrifying situation. No, you just get it. Like what's happening here. <laughs> things are put together. Funny. <laughs> 
and then even more so, of course, later. Uh, what it reminds me of is it reminds me of if you're playing a video game and you've got a cut scene, but it's not like you go up to a character and you start talking to them and it, and it mm. doesn't load an actual cut scene. So you still have control of the camera. And I'm not looking at the characters who are talking because I've seen the characters talk and they're just standing there and talking. That's not interesting. I want to look at the bird over there or, or the tops of the buildings. So I move the camera to look at those. And that's what this feels like, but a whole movie. Well, it has the similar attention span, but it has uh, almost the same gaze as that, too, in that, like, oh, hey, let's zoom in on the character's boobs. <laughs> That's something we can do while we're waiting. Like, hey, let's look at that clown painting. Huh? This guy's kind of a clown. Clown painting, clown painting, clown painting. <laughs> Garbage can. <laughs> underwear on the floor. Oh, underwear on the floor. I love that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Abandoned underwear. One of the best cutaways. There's so much of that, especially oh, in Another gosh. Day, Another Man. Oh, yeah, but they start reusing uh, the same cutaway shots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and I found that they, well, it's funny that you describe Another Day, Another Man as a clip show slash slash kind of real. Yeah. Yeah, because they use uh, they use footage from uh, from Bad Girls Go to Hell. Like when they're walking down the street with the briefcase and it's just looking at their feet. They're yep. not even like the same actors walking down, but oh, no. they still <laughs> but they use the same briefcase, so they just reuse that footage. Well, and helpfully all of the apartments are Doris Wishman's apartment, I think. So they're just uh it's it's really easy to reuse shots like, oh yeah, it's the same apartment. Uh, and it's that same closet that they keep coming out of that they're pretending <laughs> is a hallway. I think there's actually two different apartments. I think no so, more than yes. that. No, I agree. Uh, I, I think one of them is her actual apartment and like just another one is an apartment of someone else in the crew. Probably you figure. Um, I mean, it's New York. It's got to be. It's, it's got to be like that. Yeah. And they just at first I thought they just put different furniture down every time. But no, they put different blankets on the existing furniture every time. Oh. Yeah. And one of the rooms is clearly just divided in the middle by a curtain that we just pretend that that's the edge of the apartment <laughs> yeah uh, and it really it like you really start to understand it when you've seen more than one and you realize they yeah. all take place in these two apartments uh so i also watched my brother's wife which is the next one in the set and is the other one from which uh i, I would say much more of another day another man is pulled so it is kind of as we were saying the clerk's animated series situation where <laughs> It feels like it's a clip show where a lot of the clips are taken from the other episode that hadn't aired yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to watch that tonight, actually. Cause... Right on. It is fun. It's a it's weirdly a much more straightforward uh, narrative for Doris Wishman. Uh, every time the camera's looking at stuff, I do feel like it's a character looking at something and experiencing something. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting that I find that interesting. Well, yeah, because this one... It, both of them, you, you get these cutaways and like, who was bored? What, what, like, I'm not sure what who <laughs> is supposed to be looking at what. <laughs> is it oh, just yeah. like, oh, I can't look at this face anymore. Let's look at this ashtray. Let's look at this plant. <laughs> we follow a pigeon just walking down the sidewalk for like two minutes at one point in one of the movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, bird, that's interesting. Look at that bird. Yeah, yeah look at the bird. <laughs> that's pre-production value. 
<laughs> yeah, and we can reuse that bird whenever we want now. Oh, yeah, someone saw it. Slash back to that bird again. That was kind of <laughs> cool. Remember that bird? <laughs> we could we could use it for like other movies too when there's dead space that we don't want to put stuff in well i feel like that's kind of the incredible mercenary thing that went through wishman's head of making another day another man it's like well all of these movies are shot in this way where i'm carefully not looking at faces when people are talking so it's all silent already i could just put another voice over it and use a few bunch of different ones and i can use a bunch of just the behind the scenes footage and uh, we can make a new story out of it free this is just like all extra material it's like she's it's like all the film reels that she's shot are like legos that she just puts together a different way mm-hmm. uh, it, it's sort of tremendous uh like Another Day, Another Man is a really interesting one because it's sort of pure, unfiltered Wishman in a really bizarre sort of way. Because it is a clip show, but it's like her doing her own clip show based on two movies and a bunch of behind-the-scenes footage. And I don't know how much is new exactly. It, it does seem to just be her hanging out with all of the people from those two movies in her apartment. <laughs> Some of it has to be new. Some of it's I don't know how be. much, but... Because I haven't seen the other movie, but I figure... A lot of it is from My Brother's Wife. <laughs> There's so well, much. It's very noticeable watching My Brother's Wife. It's like, oh yeah, okay, that's that part, that's that part. <laughs> yeah, but let, let's get into Another Day, Another Man. Hell yeah. Uh, so we have our, I guess, our main character, Anne, maybe. Anne. Uh, who has recently married Steve... Uh, and wants to quit her job because, and is keeping it a secret because her boss uh, doesn't want married women in the office. Uh, creepy, yeah, but also creepy, also, weird. Seems like it should be illegal, probably. Yeah, but also sixties though, so maybe not that weird. Well, I remember, I, I remember seeing a. You know how much I love these stupid industrial reels from like the fifties and sixties, uh, just like weird old. Uh, instructional videos for the workplace oh yes there's some gold in there right and there's one i've seen where it's about women in the workplace post-war and just this guy who just hates women in the workplace and it's him making all these arguments and it's sort of uh pushing for uh all of that's bullshit and maybe you need to chill out it's it's kind of a fun instructional video in that nature oh cool cool uh yeah and it it feels like that to an extent uh there's a real instructional video flavor to a doris wishman film there kind of is yeah like uh every time somebody is shocked and does a gasp they do like a tv commercial ad shocked gasp Mm -hmm. like so dramatic they like they throw their hands up but they like just pause enough well, they are silent actors, so I guess they're really oh. playing to the rafters, right? Because well, like they they literally are doing a silent film on set. They they know they're not recording any sound. That makes sense, actually. I never thought about it that way, but that does explain all these like big physical performances. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes well, there's not. Right, and I guess especially because most of these people are amateur actors or non-actors <laughs> or actors in a different kind of acting field perhaps well this is pre-porno like porno literally didn't exist 
uh, in, in terms of uh, as a cinematic format kind of only starts to come to uh, like an as an actual thing that you could do like a feature length movie of in a few years time. Like we're just before that. That's sort of the gap that Wishman fills with the nudie cuties and the roughies. This is sort of the roughies era, which is sex and violence mixed together. So there's, you know, there's, there's going to be some rape in there. You just blew my mind because it never occurred to me that there'd be a time of, uh, of like motion of film media that doesn't also have a time of porn overlapping it. Yeah, that is a really fascinating thing. And uh, there, there's this excellent documentary. I think Severin put this one out, like the Video Nasties one we watched, uh, called That's Sexploitation. And it's just tracking that weird era where porn was literally illegal. So they couldn't uh, have, for a while, there were just like nudity only had to be in sort of a scientific context. So you had the white coder films where you would have nudity in the context of someone in a lab coat talking about sex. (laughs) (laughs) And then you had the nudie cuties where you just hung out at a fucking nudist colony. Okay. Yeah. I did find it like kind of weird that they clearly wanted to show nudity in here, but there's none. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cause this is where it's not quite allowed. Uh, and the early Doris Wishman, like Doris Wishman started in the nudie cuties. I just got that set of her earliest movies, starting with nude on the moon <laughs> where they're at a nudist colony and some men on the moon show up, but, they're into nudity too because they're like an evolved uh, race and so forth you know they're, they're moon people cool our super cool. jumps are much better than yours on the moon <laughs> <laughs> so Anne and steve are newly married and they are so codependent holy shit steve um, sucks <laughs> steve sucks uh, this is obviously played to be super romantic but they're saying things like I can't be without you for 24 hours. Oh, I'm ready to be a housewife. That's what I want to hear. There's nobody else for me. And- right. Well, and all of this is post-dubbed. So again, it sort of feels like Doris Wishman's satirizing monogamous marriage. <laughs> <laughs> it does kind of feel that way. Uh, I, I just imagining that these two characters had the discussion, like, would you still love me if I was an octopus? Oh, sure I would. Uh, would you still love me if I was a useless invalid who sat in the bed all day and forced you to sell your body for money to keep us both alive? Uh, may- may- maybe. Excellent. Steve, Steve is weird because it, it does kind of seem that he is predatory in some sense. It, it, it doesn't really... I, I don't know how he thought his work was going to support them. Because I don't really yeah. get what his work is. No, no, I don't get what anybody's actual... Well, I get what Tessa's job is, but I don't get what any of their jobs are. Uh, Right, I mean, Anne works in an office. (laughs) Yeah, um, I mean, I don't understand office work, period. Like, what even goes on in there? I saw office space, and that didn't tell me anything. I guess I'm technically an office worker, but I'm a remote office worker, so I don't deal with the office politics quite so much. But, yeah, clearly, like, the whole thing was... They and they, Steve wants Anne to be a stay-at-home housewife, but Steve's job doesn't currently pay enough to be able to afford that. So he has to go for this race, which he hasn't done yet, even though they've all got married and got these big plans. 
Yeah, and uh, she's not allowed to be married with her job, as we were saying. Yeah. And it, it's like this whole stupid thing. Uh, it, it just seems like they're their whole marriage is built on a foundation of lies, which is probably not great. Yeah. Um, I wonder how much of Steve's bullshit is true and, and is a lie as it goes on through the movie. Well, yeah, especially vis-a-vis the financial status, which seems to be just a mess. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, she mentions, or Steve mentions that he did get the promotion uh, or a promotion, rather, the, right. and that he's already paid the first month's rent at this new place that uh, they, I guess they had looked at previously. I guess he can just go do that back then, and he didn't have to go through, like, 50,000 hoops to rent a place. I would say that's, that's very likely then, yeah. Different times, man. Holy. So, is this before or after we have the first extended lingerie sequence, where it is her and Tess? This is right before that, because Steve's like, well, why don't we go on a date tonight to celebrate all this stuff? And she's like, oh, no, my roommate, Tess, uh, I promised her I'd be home. She really wanted to talk to me. It sounded really important. Right. She she needed me to hang out in lingerie with her. It's our, you know, Saturday night thing. So um, (laughs) I get the feeling that it is their Saturday night thing because they she goes home and talks to Tess, but Tess is all like, yeah, I actually don't want to tell you what's wrong, but let's all get undressed and hang out in lingerie. And they do. Right, and and this is a staple of the Doris Wishman, uh, this era of Wishman. That, that is just what people do uh, anytime someone is alone in an apartment. It's like, well, I got to get all these clothes and into just some slinky underwear. I mean, what else would I be doing? And then we'll do housework in the lingerie. <laughs> Why not? Yep. That's uh, how well, Bad Girls Go to Hell starts. It is how bad girls go to hell starts. She uh, goes out of the apartment in the lingerie just to take out the trash, and that's when the maintenance guy rapes her. Well, he uh, he attacks her, and then someone interrupts them, so he, like, leaves that note. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then she's like, huh, I don't understand. I guess I'll go see him and find out what this is about. And yeah. that's when he attacks her. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, lady, bad decision number one or number two, maybe number three by that point. She racks yeah. up fast. Oh, yeah. And then she ends up destroying the note that could have been used as evidence right. against the rapist. So she has nothing to do but leave town. Well, not even that. She leaves town drawing attention to herself by being the person who was there and left town. Like, she just, <laughs> every decision she makes at this point is so unbelievably dumb. And you do get the impression from the end of the movie that she's just about to redo all of the same decisions anyways, even though she just remembers having made all of them in her loop. Oh, yeah, no, time is a flat circle. She can't get out. She's not smart enough. She's gone to hell. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, nobody goes to hell at this one yet. Or maybe Debatably. everybody is in hell. Or maybe they are. Yeah, you're right. As they're getting dressed, or undressed, rather, which is a big, long sequence. It's always a big, long sequence when they're taking their clothes off. You get some go-go music going. And, uh, yeah, there's voiceover. Uh, no actual talking. Again, we're no, not never. watching them talk. No sync Sometimes. But Anne is, since Tess doesn't want to talk about whatever she wanted to talk about, and Anne got her date night ruined because of this. She's all like, well, you got to stay away from Bert. Uh, he's not good for you. 
And we learn here that Bert is Tessa's boyfriend slash pimp. Right. Bert is a real big character in this. And he he's a major character in both of the other films as well. He is the scumbag who is involving himself with the brother's wife of my brother's wife. Yeah. And, and he, in Bad Girls Go to Hell, he's the drinker. He is the he is the drinker who goes from like zero to plastered in 30 seconds, but he hits every stage in between. And he's just like a super angry drunk. He he kind of gives me a little bit of like his face and the way he acts a little bit gives <clears> me <throat> Nicolas Cage energy. Yeah, I can see that. Like like mini Nick Cage, of course, not like full Nick Cage. Well, like classic New York scumbag. So it's sort of like a proto version of his uh, Moonstruck character, but totally unsympathetic. Oh, yes. that That's what it made me think of as the Moonstruck character. Mm-hmm. He's got kind of that look to him, but like, you know, a really disreputable and just genuinely bad guy. He's really nasty. He's a real piece of work in my brother's wife. He's pretty bad in this, too. He uh, is. And he, you could ar- you could make an argument for him being the main character because he's the only one who gets to narrate a story. His his voiceover sequence is absolutely my favorite part of the movie. Oh man, um, uh, was good. It's up there. It's not my favorite part, but it's up there. Yeah, they're discussing like how how Tess has got to get away from Bert because he's real bad for her and real bad for everybody he comes into contact with. But Tess is like. Well, how else am I going to get $200 a week? Right, $200 a week, $200 a week. Uh, that's going to be Yeah, that's one that's an important line that's going to echo. Yeah, it's going to be a dental plan Lisa needs braces. Absolutely. I mean, $200 a week, that's big money in 1966. It's that's kind of big money now when I was, uh, you know, that's <laughs> about what I was pulling in when I was doing food delivery and I was like, oh, this doesn't work. Right, but that's like full rent money in New York in the '60s, uh, in oh, the right yeah. place. Yeah, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. And Steve doesn't know what Tess does for a living. Steve being Anne's husband, and Tess is like, "Well, if Steve did know what I did, he'd think that I contaminated you." Which, which arguably she did. That that kind of uh, seems to be maybe a Doris Wishman hypothesis. Yeah. Uh, it's debatable. She wouldn't have got involved in that work if Tess didn't exist. Right. Although she also wouldn't have gotten involved in that work if her husband wasn't a useless loaf. That's uh, also who, true. Who is not only useless, but oblivious to everything about her. <laughs> so clueless because he's only stuck in his own in his own wallowing, head. wallowing in his own misery. Yeah, like <laughs> It's so bad for me that my wife has to put herself on the line like this. Feel sorry for me that you have to do all this stuff, and it makes me look like a bad husband kind of thing. Yeah, he's just constantly, disgustingly woe is me about his situation, about not being able to provide for her while she is the one not being provided for. And it's like, uh uh-huh, uh-huh, I'm still listening to you complain about not being uh, able to do anything about things like i'm sick of it too i i kind of do get her wanting to just go out at night that maybe she did have other options but this is a pretty good option this gets him gets her out of the house get some Mm. nightlife 
but we aren't at that point yet. Uh, no. We still have to do more lovey-dovey codependent talk while uh, Steve carries uh, Anne over the threshold of their new place. And they've got a piano and like all this nice furniture, but it's a furnished apartment, which apparently is bad. It's it's just expensive. Uh, you know that that's like oh. extra on the rent. Oh, that'll do it. I kind of got the impression that the piano had something to do with his work, that he was maybe like a composer or something, like a jingle composer. It would be something like that. (laughs) Yeah, because it's Uh, while he's at the piano that he has his fit (laughs) uh, or he joins his anti-work. I was going to say heart attack, but we're like just I don't want to attack. Yeah, he just decides that he can't anymore. Just no no longer can. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah. It yeah. just becomes fucking useless disorder. Yeah, but but not yet. They're still got to do their whole, like, oh, aren't you so glad we're married? Oh, of course. Oh, if, if you ever cheated on me or anything, I'd probably kill myself. Oh, ha, ha, oh, you. They don't say that, but you know they've had this conversation. It's uh, the room esque. It's you know it's very the room esque, and I was actually thinking this kind of reminds me like the whole Doris Wishman experience reminds me of a cross between Ed Wood, Al Adamson, and Tommy Wiseau. Yeah, there, there's a bit of all of that in there. Like Wiseau is a real heir to Doris Wishman as an auteur. Uh, I, I feel like people talk about auteur theory. Most of the time, just with really successful directors like Stanley Kubrick and Alfred Hitchcock. I'm really interested in the trash auteurs. Uh, Doris Wishman makes a movie like nobody else. When you watch a Doris Wishman, movie, it's like, yeah, this is a fucking Doris Wishman movie. From beginning to end, there is an unmistakable energy to a Doris Wishman movie. And that's not good exactly, but it's distinct. Yeah, uh, my, on my second watch through of a movie, I always put it on... 1.5 speed so I can just watch it more and because I'm just taking notes and like reminding myself what happened. I can't do that with these movies. It's too fast. It's so hyperactive because she just constantly needs to look at something else. <laughs> this one especially. This one I feel like the cutaways get very aggressive because it's already a cut and paste movie. She's like, well, while I'm at it, <laughs> <laughs> I could have looked at a few more things in the house while we were doing this scene. Yeah, clown painting. I love painting the clown of, painting. <laughs> painting of Bert on the wall for some reason. <laughs> yeah. Well, like that—that that was kind of the funny thing. I was—I started to have a theory that maybe some of these were meaningful. I think ninety-nine percent of the time they're not, but the clown painting does seem to often be used to punctuate how fucking lame someone is a few times. Well, it would mostly be Steve because the clown yes. painting is in Steve's apartment. And Steve is a fucking clown. <laughs> Steve is a clown. See, this movie doesn't feel anti-feminist just because of how much of a clown Steve is. Steve is such a fucking load. Uh, it does seem to be a farce on Steve. I, I completely envision a sequence where she describes her orgy where she was like being plowed by man after man. It was just another day, another man. Uh, they're all wearing masks and they were all laughing at him. <laughs> <laughs> and then Steve has to go out and uh, infiltrate the wealthy elite and 
Uh, he doesn't do anything that cool. Steve's not going to go outside. He's not going to go get out. out of bed. <laughs> no, you're right. More like, oh, well, I guess I'm just going to lie down then. Well, because, like, he's not even a virgin who seeks status. He just sucks. He's just waiting for life to take him. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, man. But now we get to meet Bert for the first time. We've got a scene with Tess and Bert. Right. And Bert the pimp. Bert the pimp, yep. And, uh, yeah, he just lets himself into Tess's apartment because he has keys. Uh, but it's, like, real menacingly. It's like, don't come in here when... Sorry. She she had a problem with him using the keys because uh, she didn't want Anne to know that he had keys to the place when she still had her name on the lease because she didn't like the idea of him being able to come in at any time. Yeah, but Bert figures that if, even though he's never met Anne, if he did, she'd fall in love with him. Yeah, uh, that seems like his whole deal, uh, and I think this is around where we get into the the pimp's plan scene, which is incredible, but uh, <laughs> I think this whole key thing is a sequence from My Brother's Wife. I, I believe it's just entirely recycled from that. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. is this when we get into his story of how he exploits women? Well... There's a couple more scenes of Anne and Steve being lovey-dovey and codependent, but fuck those. Let's get into his story. Okay, so it, it is just an absolutely incredible sequence because it is the montagiest of the whole movie. It's where we just get every little bit of sex that she could wring out of those. It It is the stuff where a lot of it feels like it's just people hanging out behind the scenes for some of it. <laughs> yeah, so his whole thing... Because um, he wants – there's a shindig going on, and he wants girls to be there. So he's getting Tess to get the uh, Des, Desme twins. And then he starts talking – like he falls asleep in a chair and starts thinking about how he recruited them. I went to the bus terminal one day. <laughs> yeah, a real productive day there. Uh, yeah, Dolly and Daisy – uh, 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 the the Bennett sisters, uh, Darlene and Don Bennett, actual twins. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, yeah, he's talking about how like they just came into town and they didn't know anybody, so he's like, "I could use them for my business." <laughs> this is how he talks. <laughs> yeah, well, it's oh, I I again, it's the incredible art of the '60s commercial voiceover. It's if specifically in the exploitation genre where you're gonna have a guy who sounds like this, come see Blood Shack, you know. I'm and going he's... to shoot Clint Eastwood in the new western, but I'm <laughs> actually gonna get shot by him because I'm not cool. Yeah, and you know he's he's also doing the voice for those because uh, those are all shot silent. Because I don't think this is Sam Stewart, uh, the actor behind Bert. I don't really think it's his voice because I, I think this not. voice just recurs in all of these movies. It's the same voice as the rapist of the first one, who's played by a different mm -hmm. actor. Yeah, and I'm fairly certain, and like it may he may do the same voice for My Brother's Wife, where it's the same actor, possibly. Mm, okay. I can't remember. Uh, but yeah, just his voiceover is tremendous, and it's just all of this stuff. This is the scene where you told me it just, like, you couldn't stop laughing. Oh, yeah. It just keeps it keeps going and going. He's, 
like he recruits the twins and he's talking about this girl named Meg that he recruited who outside of this flashback she doesn't exist in the movie I looked for her right she's from I I think this is all footage from my brother's wife all of the Meg stuff I think she is the titular brother's wife okay I think and yeah, he's like talking about how he recruited her to his pimp ring and like just by introducing her to the twins, uh, he gets one of the tr- twins uh, to be a sex worker just by getting her really high. And it's like, oh, well, now she's ruined. Now she's a sex worker. Well, that's how they get you. I mean, that that's a basic yeah. reefer madness argument. Another it is, classic exploitation picture of the era. It is totally reefer madness. Mm. <laughs> the thing that gets me is like they bring uh, Meg to the twins' place, and the one girl is just sitting on the couch, like lying face down, bouncing her butt, bouncing her butt, and bouncing it and bouncing her butt like nonstop. Oh, for endlessly, and and just constantly cutting back to it, and you have the go-go music going. Yep, and like Meg just takes off her stuff and starts her clothes and starts dancing. We just cut back to the bouncing butt. Um, and then and like I, okay and and then of course uh you know kirk and spock or kirk and scotty are, are you know nodding admiring the butt and like mm-hmm, yeah wow majestic yeah every time i thought that the scene was going to over like that this cut was going to be the end of the scene it just kept going just like them going to the enterprise there's like a half speed version of the bird playing like everybody's heard about the bird (laughs) (laughs) but but that's not the part that i was dying laughing to actually oh okay uh because we meet meg's uh fiance a guy named john who uh who wants to take Meg back to the farm and make her be a farmer's wife. She doesn't want to, but she didn't want to hurt his feelings. So she agreed to marry him. <laughs> but yeah, that's she... weird. I, I also wonder with his name being John, if it's yeah. code for maybe he was just a John who was obsessed with her. Oh, that, that she changes married. the context. Could be, could be. Well, I'm going to say no, because he didn't know about the work that she did. Cause he found out, during that oh, phone call yeah and this is like and then when he confronts her about it he does like the angry uh, arthur clenched fist meme oh yes he does <laughs> he's like clenching and unclenching his fist just getting angrier and angrier and this is the only time i think in the whole movie that it looks like dialogue is coming out of his mouth is when he calls her a whore <laughs> yeah it's a distinct mouth uh movement uh, you you can really see it. It's it's a good O sound. And then he let her know what he really thought of her. <laughs> and then, so this is the part that made me laugh. The next scene is him coming to Meg's apartment to apologize. And the, oh, twins, and the twins just <laughs> start making out with him. And it's just, this scene just goes on and on and on. And it's yeah. doing the music and it's like, Re- repeating the footage again and again and at some point Tess just shows up and is standing in the doorway watching them for like a solid five minutes before she says what the heck are you guys doing in here and at this point I paused it because I was dying laughing and I was sure that that was the end of the scene and it wasn't 
what are you guys up to in here? Oh, you guys. <laughs> she watches them for like another few minutes and then leaves. And then there's this whole bit where he's like crawling on the floor trying to escape from them. And they're like smothering him on the floor. And this whole thing feels like it goes on for 10 minutes. Well, the bird, bird, bird. <laughs> the bird is the word. Like a big orchestral swell. And meanwhile, like the the John is John. The John, the John. whatever. Yeah. Is it, doing like the whole mark from the room thing of what is this? What are you doing, guys? Yeah, it, it does feel like you're supposed to have goofy music under it and because he's making a bunch of silly faces. Yeah. There's well, like two ladies. On top of him constantly. <laughs> but yeah, that scene, that that scene where uh, Bert's talking about Meg's origin story is the last time we see Meg. I checked. I, I looked yeah. for her. No, she's not in the rest of the movie. It, <laughs> nope. it was just that that was footage she had. <laughs> oh, it seems like that would fit in there pretty well. We could tie it together by something the pimp's doing. And I do think the pimp's story is important in that it's this whole sequence of this pimp saying exactly how he exploits women, the way he goes about it, uh, the things that work on them. And it's, in a sense, that's anti-feminist in a way, but it's also kind of a warning sign. It's like, hey, this is how men manipulate women, just by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, the... the uh... The scene is important because it kind of solidifies how, even though it doesn't make sense, it kind of solidifies how Bert has such a complete hold on these women. Yeah, because he is like narrating it to, uh, what's her, her name? Tess. Isn't it? he like kind of uh, delivering it as a monologue to Tess from the armchair? It's hard to say. I thought he was dreaming, but. I mean, with the editing, it's who can my, say? My impression was that it was him speechifying about it to her. Just it's hard to say because you don't see people say things. You see the camera cutting around people being in a room while words are being spoken. But uh, it, it seemed to me that it's just him preaching to her about how he controls her. And she's like, yeah, I, I guess that's pretty much true. But by the yeah. end, she seems to want to get away from him. She's sort of decided that she's against him. And it seems like maybe it was influenced by hearing all of this. Um, okay. Uh, I, I could definitely see it that way. That's that's not how I saw it at first, but I could see that. But it does as well have his absolutely immortal line over just a wild party where they keep cutting to that one bowl of, like, reeds on the <laughs> table. <laughs> yeah, I wrote it down. My day at the bus terminal really paid off. So fucking rad. Because, like, out of context, this was the first thing I, I'd sent you. And this was your your taste of the Wishman experience to begin with. That Just a, a go-go music, all of these people dancing. I, I sent you, like, a good 20-second chunk of it. That's yeah, just all of that. And then finally him going, my day at the bus terminal was very productive. Like, what the fucking hell? <laughs> <laughs> How do we get here from there? And we still don't really know, but we have a better idea, at least. <laughs> Our friend Tony's like, is this parody or is this authentic? And I was like, it is 100% authentic. This is the real deal. Yeah, it only looks like parody in the same way that The Room looks like a parody, but it isn't. Yeah. So now we flash back to kind of uh, 
here's where Steve finally gets sick. And he's complaining about the spaghetti and meatballs that uh, Anne cooked for her. It's like, I'm getting tired of spaghetti and meatballs. Oh, you have no appreciation for my hard work. It's not that. It's just I want to eat other things. Anyway, I'm going to go play the piano and then not for a bit. Yeah, they're like starting to fight. He's starting to show his true colors. But then he's just like, fuck it. I'm going to get really sick. Well, it's so weird because he's just sitting at the computer and they're having another conversation. and He just falls over and is no longer capable of doing anything again. He's like, ah, I just fell to fucking being worthless. I'm no longer capable of doing things. They get a doctor and the doctor's like, yep, he's useless. Yeah, it just seems like he has come down with a big old can't do shit no more. Yeah, he's going to be like this for another uh, five or six months. Cool, cool. I wonder if, because the doctor does ask Anne to leave the room, I wonder if Steve just, like, slipped him a hundred and said, hey, I need you to make up some bullshit so that I don't have to do anything anymore. I think it's, like, the 50s version of a nervous breakdown. That Like, he's had this nervous breakdown, and no one's allowed to say the words, and no one's really allowed to actually address any sort of mental health issues. They're all just yeah. saying, well, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's just he he just needs some bed rest and recuperation. I mean, if he yeah. was a woman, he would maybe get lobotomized or something. Oh, oh, for sure. Oh, but, God, if if Anne had fallen sick like this. Yeah, well, I mean, Anne isn't uh, uh, supposed to be the the uh, breadwinner of the house. Right. Well, she is now. Cause, uh, <laughs> She's going to have to be. Quote, unquote, can't do it. So, yeah, that's the thing. The doctor says he'll be he needs to be in bed for five or six months, but does not need to be hospitalized. Don't you want to, like, take him down there just for a day and do some tests or anything? No, no, no. Well, I mean, the big problem is he's come down with plot convenience syndrome. (laughs) Yes. And he will get better uh, right when it's uh, when the plot requires him to. Yeah, exactly. He he is exactly where he needs to be. In bed and annoying and <laughs> just useless. Yeah. Uh, she should uh, feed him some of Ezra's green soup. Yeah. <laughs> Pea soup. Worked in The Exorcist, worked in Deranged. Yeah, yeah. Oh, come on, Steve. You're not dying. No, I'm not dying, but just get up, Steve. Maybe you can choke on the soup and everybody will be happy. Uh, but she is actually... F- understandably freaking out because she has quit her job and told the boss who doesn't like married women to basically take the job and shove it. So he can't work supposedly. She doesn't have a job. They're kind of fucked. Yeah. Although ringing in her mind, of course is I couldn't make $200 a week any other way. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, what can I do? Where else can I make $200 a week? Oh, what can I do? Where else can I make $200 a week? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, my sexy friend with her sexy job. That would be a much better thing to do with my nights than hang around and listening to Steve complain about how he can't do anything. (laughs) Yeah, but he doesn't want her to do anything either. So what are they going to do? But Anne's got like this whole thing. She 
<laughs> she's like, oh, well, I'm going to ask for my old job back. Uh, but he wants me working nights to do special paperwork that can only be done at night. And this special paperwork, uh, I have to do it at a different building every time. So you won't be able to call me. Yeah, it's just, you know, I got to it, 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 it takes place at different places. See, uh, I, I, I couldn't possibly be called because, uh, you know, it's a filing on the road. I'm doing that careful night filing. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, like, yes. oh, definitely. I've I've been in the workplace. I know things. I'm <laughs> useful at times. I've been known to uh, uh, provide for a family. Yes, I can't wait to get better and start providing for a family again. Yep. He's like the inverse of a John List where. Oh, my God, just, John List. <laughs> yeah, he just like collapses into himself and is unable to provide, whereas like. John List is such an asshole that he gets fired from all his jobs. And then he, as someone who can't provide, he annihilates the family. This guy just disintegrates on impact. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So predictably, she does, uh, she does go to, well, she doesn't go to Tess. Uh, we see Bert planning, Bert and Tess planning a, uh, you know, the next party that they're going to have to go, another shindig or whatever. Big sexy and, party. Uh, yeah. Uh, an eyes wide shut type thing, but is. 60s, low, lower class. Yeah, yeah. And it's basically like, you're going to have to take care of the new girl and show her the ropes and everything. Show her how things are done around here. And that's when Anne one walks in and Tess just starts laughing her ass off, like, it's, it's, it's another one of those, like, this shot is way too long uh, scenes where she's just laughing at Ed being there. I mean, they really needed to pad out the footage. This is a clip movie. so <laughs> and it's still only an hour and ten minutes. Yeah, exactly. You, you really got to pad it out to make sure that uh, it fits in a feature time or a, a B picture time frame, I guess. Yeah, so um, Anne's first job is literally an eyes wide shut situation where the guy's got like like a face mask over his eyes and it's like, I am an important politician. You, I can't let you know who I am. If my secret were to come out, it would ruin, it would ruin everything. And mm -hmm. but yeah, but she keeps asking like, who are you? Who are you? Do we ever really know who we are, my dear? It's weird. She is really bad at the job. Uh, oh, consistently. Is. Like, with each guy, she does something that's completely idiotic that screws up the job. It's not unlike our bad girl who went to hell. Just keeps making really dumb decisions about men. Mm -hmm. Like, this time, everything seems to be going kind of okay. She's, like, a normal amount of awkward for, you know, a first job and getting this weirdo who talks like a villain. But she rips off his mask, which is like the number one thing you don't do in this kind of situation. And yeah, that, that was what uh, made everybody feel awkward at the party in, uh, fuck, <laughs> the, uh, the, the Knife Plus Heart director's first movie. Shit, I can't remember what it's oh. called. <laughs> oh, did we did i watch that with you you or? didn't i i've talked okay. about it a lot because it really sticks in my mind but there's a part where there's a lady who's called the movie star and she's uh wearing a mask and nobody else is but you know she's very serious about wearing the mask and someone pulls it off and she makes a really big scene about it and gets very upset and then it's the part where the guy's like well 
before you showed up, I was going to pull out my dick to show everyone. It's large and magnificent. I thought maybe we could try that to see if I could get the party back going again. (laughs) (laughs) What is this movie? I have to watch it. (laughs) Yeah, we we totally got to watch that one sometime. I cannot remember what it is called, but uh, it's it's a special, special picture. Oh, man. Yeah, so so the guy uh, flies into a rage after you know his mask gets ripped off because ripping off the mask will be very painful for you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he goes. He basically bane's her. Well, no, he does not go full bane because she lives. Yeah, he just you know beats her up. I, I like he slaps her around. It's not even yeah, as bad uh, as the next guy she screws around with. Oh, the next guy is Tess actually. Uh, it's Tess with the wife beater guy. Oh, that's yeah. weird. That was a stupid, like it. It's, that was a dumb move. That's no. Well, yeah, on her part, that. dim. Really, not sensible. Given that, like, she has some experience with this already. Yeah, yeah. So Tess, uh, Tess is seeing this uh, guy who's like, "Oh boy, you're really stacked." I bet you say that to all the girls. Oh, I don't know all the other girls. <laughs> he just seems like a really sweet eager guy and you know everything's going fine and then there's well i mean as fine as these situations can go and they're asleep and tess tries to take out his wallet yeah i like i i got the impression vaguely that the idea was that she didn't want to wake him up but she needed to get her money before she left but she should know yeah like yeah. it's just not a smart way to do it like look you're in sort of a weird service situation where you kind of need to wake him up even if it's not very polite to wake him up it's like you need to wake him up to get the money you can't just take it yourself or there's going to be a problem like the one that uh results yeah he beats the fuck out of her yeah she gets really beat up uh, I, I've I've got it. The movie that I was thinking of is called You and the Night. Oh, that's a cool title. Yeah, so we'll have to keep that one in mind. We've got to do that one sometime. Yeah. Crazy movie. <laughs> yeah, he beats the shit out of her, and she goes home to Bert. Doesn't complain about the guy beating up uh, Bert's girl or nothing. Just is all like, Bert, I want you to marry me. What? That's fucked up. Well, yeah, I, uh, unbelievable for her to think that he would. <laughs> he is you not know marriage type. isn't for me. Holy shit, girl. <laughs> like, I'm a pimp. Remember how I was telling you the other day about entrapping women and how that's kind of my job? You're one yeah. of the women I've entrapped, lady. But we finally... Sorry, you're fin- one of the women I entrapped, lady. Yeah, there we go. But we finally find out what Tess's problem is that she's been wanting to talk to to somebody about but never talk to anybody about at any point she's pregnant with Bert's baby maybe (laughs) maybe and his reaction why are you picking on me (laughs) (laughs) and and then he walks out of the movie yeah buddy Uh. yeah (laughs) such a fucking oh man Nixon is such a crazy crazy movie (laughs) Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, that's the end of Bert. He's not showing up anymore. Uh, they ran Tess, out of footage. Yep. Tess goes to visit Anne and is all like, oh, I feel so bad. I'm always saying something's wrong, and then I never say what's happening with me. Oh, well, I'm going to continue not saying what's happening with me, and I'm just going to leave. 
Yeah, so I think she's like leaving town. She's like going back to her hometown or something. That's her plan. She actually calls the cops on Bert and is mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, he's running a pimp thing. How do I know I'm one of the girls? Yeah, I mean, pretty easy to take that guy down. Pretty easy. He, yeah. He did but, not think his thing through fully. No, but, <laughs> but you know, he's just trying to have a productive day at the bus terminal. Yeah, but, like, he shouldn't have given her all the details. Uh, no, he should not have. It's like the snowman. Mr. Officer, I, I gave you all the clues. <laughs> yeah, so Tess calls the cops on Bert, but uh, it doesn't doesn't take right away because because Bert's able to call Anne and has another job for her. So she writes down the address of the job, but leaves the uh, folded up paper crumpled on the desk. Mm-hmm. But that's OK. Steve can't see it. He's, you know, he's useless in bed. By the way, we've had a bunch of <laughs> uh, wink, wink. He's useless in bed. Oh, yeah, uh, probably. Yeah, well, yeah the, definitely. He's just yeah. fucking useless in every way. Yeah. Yeah. We, we've had a bunch of scenes of Steve being useless in bed, but they're all the same. Yeah, we, we don't really think of how he's probably useless in bed in the carnal sense. Yeah, no. Enter <laughs> me, Herbert. <laughs> but the doctor shows up and is like, hey, Steve, you're miraculously better now. <laughs> and he's like, oh, shit, that's cool. It's like, really? I'm still just here in bed. I don't yeah. know how true that is. <laughs> yeah, it's like, did you ever find out what was wrong with me, Doc? Oh, yeah, you were faking it. Well, I'll be damned. Because, like, it does not. He is totally unaware that he's better. He probably yeah. could have gotten up at any time. Oh, sure. But he needed the doctor to tell him. Yeah. But he does get up. Um, he sees the note because, of course, he does and thinks, oh, that must be where she's working to do her mysterious paperwork that can only be done at night. Right. I forgot about the the earlier scenes where we see him just endlessly bitching and moaning about his situation intercut oh, yeah. with her changing in and out of tops. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> For like a solid five to ten minutes of just her getting semi nude and him just droning on and on about how put upon he is and how she has to work and I'm just not pulling me. anything. Yeah, it's bad for me. The, yeah, like it's only ever about him. But, you know, he's going to surprise her at work. And he. <laughs> this is. I crazy. got the address from my pianist friend. <laughs> oh my God. Fidelio. <laughs> <laughs> It would be funny if he had to come to an Eyes Wide Shut type party at uh, the Wishman apartment where it's just like half of the room is a shower curtain. People are wearing <laughs> masks, but like they're just rolling around on uh, like carpet and there's like that one sectional sofa. With the butt bouncing. Yeah, obviously she would have to be there in the center, but you got to have both of those twins. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, he enters the apartment because I guess the John doesn't doesn't lock the door and he watches them making out for an uncomfortably long time. It's unbelievable that neither of them see him because he is just sitting there making faces like he is in agony. It's so funny. Yeah. His, um, his suffering is so delicious to me. I don't know what it is about it. It's like the, the, 
the hick guy in evil dead 2 where it doesn't matter matter how much abuse is heaped upon them every time it's just more funny to me (laughs) steve is one of those characters yep so he uh sad charlie brown walks home and uh he puts on some well whatever music they had he would be putting on like bird 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 is the word (laughs) (laughs) and he finds (laughs) i think it's hilarious because the knife he finds is so like small and wimpy looking and he's like you couldn't even get a proper kitchen knife it's like a paring knife it's a fruit knife it is but he straight up commits uh harakiri with it yep but yeah because he used such a shitty knife i imagine it was extremely painful for him yeah i mean you know it was a lot of work probably the most work he's ever done in his life (laughs) yeah yeah he's like well this will get me the attention i need (laughs) i I hope i don't actually He's been getting a lot of attention. Too much attention, I would argue. Yeah, but also, you know, not enough attention for him. Right. Because she's doing stuff that doesn't involve him. How dare she? It's crazy. It seems like he just wanted to get her entrapped in this situation and then have her as his maid. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. But the plan backfired, so I really, like, it's... I don't think it's intended in the movie, but my take on it is this was supposed to be a cry for help suicide attempt. It wasn't supposed to take. It's possible. I don't know if Wishman would be necessarily that nuanced. <laughs> I don't think she intended that. But, but yeah, that, I can see it. I can see that's it. a possible read for the yeah. character. Yeah. But no, he fucking did. Yeah, he's dead. It's pretty funny. Uh, <laughs> rip Steve. Uh, he he was too lame to live. Yeah, and Anne's on her way home. It's like, oh, I'm do- I really got to stop doing this. I'm gonna call my boss and actually ask for my job back, and you know, get out of sex work and do this the right way. And it'll be tough until Steve recovers. But I guess we'll just both have to be working for a while when he does. And then, oh my God, Steve is dead. That's kind of okay. Like, no, oh, she's, she's freaking yeah, out, actually. She, she's very sad. I'm like, oh, no, not Steve. He was going to be I, so useful in my life. And he fi- she finds the note crumpled up in his hand and is like, oh, but I did it for you. I did it for you. Oh, well, Steve. Well, the, the thing is, she has to then infer from that that he was able to go there and find her because what would he get from just looking at the image so again did she not see him there she was just (laughs) hovering over them making a production of himself like he always does it's unbelievable that neither of them saw him like this was the the dude and the wife beater with the sunglasses right yeah no it's the same guy but now he has sunglasses so it's a different guy right uh, he is the brother in My Brother's Wife. Okay. I, I'm just amazed that Steve wasn't in there, wasn't just like, <gasps> Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. My uh, wife. I can't believe my wife. I'm just going to go. It's it's just crazy. You know, clown painting, clown painting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, all of this interspersed is just random 
half a second cuts to like a garbage can or the clown painting or a plant. The classic Doris Wishman cutaway, uh, the the most distinctive element of her work. It's like Andy Milligan's swirl camera. <laughs> These movies are a blast if you're like in the right kind of mindset for just ADHD camera. And they're like they're they're sort of perfect party movies. They're the sort of movie that you can just put on in the background of just doing something else because there's just so much weird kinetic imagery. You've got fun music and then just people saying weird shit out of nowhere and just uh, everyone in lingerie. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, the the music is really fun. It's all like yeah. like trumpets and horns and like it, oh it's it's fun. It's a blast. Yeah, it's it's like proto psychedelic, not quite there. It's sort of more of a stag film atmosphere necessarily, but ah, oh, uh, such a good time. So weird. Like even in this one, which is obviously lesser, it's uh, a, a constructed piece of cinema out of other bits. Uh, you know, it's a little loose ends film, but it's still really fun. It's still so individual. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I definitely wish I hadn't uh, slept on Doris Wishman for as long as I had, but I'm definitely going to get into more of this. We'll totally need to cover some of the other really crazy ones. Maybe do some double bills of some of the weirder shit that's kind of paired off, like the 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 double agent seventy four films. <laughs> All right, maybe. Uh, so uh, do you have any more thoughts on another day, another man? Before we move on to our final section. No, because. That was a productive part two of the podcast. All right. And we're back for part three, the watched stacks. We're going to talk about some other movies watched in the past week and decide what to watch next week. All right. So first up, as mentioned in part two, I watched My Brother's Wife, which is the next Doris Wishman film. Oh, tell me about Doris Wishman. I'm not familiar. (laughs) so uh this one's really weird this this one is oddly straightforward like it it, it's a pretty direct narrative in in this case it it doesn't use the cutaways as abstractly it's this this dude uh who was the pimp in another day another man yeah he's this scumbag uh, and his he he comes in town to visit his brother who's recently married, and the brother for whatever reason has this hot wife who he is f- completely sexually uninterested in, and she's really horny. Oh, an Al Bundy situation. Al Bundy situation. He's just like a greaseball. Uh, he's you know he's the sunglasses guy. Uh, oh, that's what I wanted to say. That guy reminded me of Al Bundy. Yeah, he's he's Bundy esque, like especially Bundy esque in this. And then, like, the brother-in-law, he's sort of in this weird flirtatious relationship with her because she's really hot for him. You know the footsie scene in Another Day, Another Man? That's how they meet in My Brother's Wife. That's the first scene between them in My Brother's Wife. Okay. But, yeah, uh, it's it's goofball. Uh, There's uh, this whole thing where the brother-in-law has this other lady that he... Uh, secretly has on the side and he's just trying to steal all the brother's money and run off with this lady and he's just kind of willing to involve the wife in that (laughs) real bad guy yeah cool uh next up we've got bodyguard kiba which is i don't uh, know this one it's the next one in the sunny chiba box set uh this one 
It's directed by the same director who did the first of the uh, Yakuza Wolf films, but not the second one. Oh, okay. So it's kind of more styled like that one. Uh, it's a little zanier, but it kind of generally takes its source material seriously. It treats it uh, with uh, a general straight-faced nature, even though it's absurdist and, and overdone, because this one's actually directly based on a manga. Oh, cool. Where it's, you know, Sonny Chiba is this uh, tough karate guy. It's it's a really weird concept where his dojo is this rogue karate and exile group who formed in upstate New York because, you know, they were exiled from Japan for being too violent. So he's like built up his skills by battling boxers and, uh, you know, pro wrestlers and shit. This is like literally the Shredder's backstory. Yeah, essentially. Uh, so it's him doing that. And there's also in parallel this uh, rogue Yakuza group who's also in New York and pulling off mob hits. But they're back in Japan while he's back in Japan. And it's this whole thing <laughs> where he gets hired as a bodyguard for this lady who has uh, intentions that are unclear for quite some time. Okay. Uh, next, we've got the Lemon Grove Kids, or the Lemon Grove Kids Meet the Monsters. Interesting. This is the next one in the Ray Dennis Steckler set, and it is fucking interesting. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, tell me about it. I, I believe I sent you a couple clips from this one where uh, it, it's just... It, it's their parody of the Bowery Boys in the first part. This is a movie that's in three sections where each of them is by a different director and they kind of feel like a different riff on the concept. Oh, that's, that's an interesting idea. Uh, so the first part, which I think is directed by Ray Dennis Steckler is them just straight up doing a Bowery boys thing, which was like, it's little rascals esque, except it's more about having big absurd, uh, uh, gang war between kids, you know, like 11 year old kids pretending to be gangsters and having just these gigantic wars over turf. Right. Right. But do that with a bunch of 40 year olds or mid 30 guys who <laughs> uh, grew up on those films and are just having a lot of fun with the concept. Uh, and that, that part I absolutely love. It's just this really wild, uh, really wild uh, nostalgic exercise, I guess. Uh, <laughs> And near the end of it, uh, things just get really chaotic, and it seems like Gopher, which is the main character who runs through all of these, which is the guy played by Ray Dennis Steckler himself, of course, mm -hmm. he he just he gets lost in this foot race that's going on for a while, and he drifts over into other movies, including <laughs> uh, Rat Fink a Boo Boo. He he briefly crosses over into, and he shows up in a mummy movie for a while and is menaced by a mummy, which is kind of funny. <laughs> And All then right. suddenly the credits rolled and it blew my fucking mind because I was just like watching it stoned. And <laughs> it, all of a sudden it's just like it ended 29 minutes into the thing. And, and I thought they were doing a fake out credits at, at like the 29 minute mark. Like, <laughs> oh, my God, I've never actually seen a movie do this. But it's actually three episodes of the Lemon Grove Kids. Oh, OK. So then it comes back up and the second one is more modern. It's like them doing uh, a current movie and it's mostly Ray Dennis Steckler with a bunch of actual kids. Like 
his kids and kids of the crew and stuff. Okay. And them just, uh, they, they get hired as the Lemon Grove kids and they're supposed to clean up a lawn and he's still gopher. This Mm -hmm. man who seems to be, uh, not all, he, he's an Ed Gein type, I guess. Not, not in a bad way, but he's got just limitations and he seems weird. He he changes a little bit each time, but in this middle one, he's kind of creepy. Okay. But he's gopher. There's a one part where someone was yelling at him and I thought they said goofer. <laughs> and I couldn't kick it because the whole movie, it seemed like goofer would be really appropriate. I can be like, <laughs> goofer, what are you doing? Of course, I sure don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then like the third part just goes really straight up kids movie. Uh, they uh, they like have uh, sing alongs with acoustic guitar and they're like working for this lady who wants to get back. Like she's a former silent film star who wants to get back into the biz and she's going to make Cleopatra. Cause I think it's riffing on sunset Boulevard for whatever reason. All right. <laughs> weird set of movies, a whole weird thing. Interesting. All right. Sounds like, sounds like fun. Yeah. Uh, quite a bizarre thing. Uh, next we've got the running man. You've seen the running man. Oh, I have seen The Running Man. Forget the Dynamo. <laughs> dynamo. Oh, 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 oh. Well, he does it better than me because I'm not going to sing opera and I can't sing opera. He's an actual opera singer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's it's such a fucking blast. I love this movie. Professor Sub-Zero. Why is he a professor? Who knows? It doesn't matter. Well, the guy himself is a professor. The the actor is Professor oh, Toru shit. Tanaka. So that's, that's cool. It's kind of fun. I love yeah. that whole movie. It's so goofball. Uh, th- like this, this is a foundational movie. I watched this when I was really young, like maybe seven on a sick day from school. It's just, oh, it's, it is so deep in my memories. <laughs> I watched it when it was fairly new, actually. I was pretty young, too. I don't remember mm-hmm. exactly when, but I, I watched it because it's like, he said I'll be back. Right, this is post-Terminator. I was obsessed with Terminator when I was pretty young. I had the novelization of the Terminator and read it over and over again. Ooh. (laughs) Next up, we've got Running Out of Time. This is a late 90s Hong Kong action flick. Oh, cool. And it's written by a couple French fans of Hong Kong action. So it's pretty self-aware and it's kind of actively shipping the super cop and the super criminal it's kind <laughs> oh, of fun yes oh my god i love it and of course it's he's a dying super criminal he's realized he has like three days to live because he has like mega cancer or something so he's just going on this one last mega spree to uh just get a bunch of money to donate to cancer research oh. or something yeah <laughs> See, I was going to say it's almost a Joker plot if he's going on to make a crime spree to get Batman to notice him. It's half that. Like most uh. of the movie, it seems like he specifically gets this one cop because there, there's a hostage situation and this guy's talking to him. He's like, I don't like your voice. Give me another guy. And the the next guy's like, no, nope, not working for me. And then the super cop shows up and is like, oh, da, 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 da. Uh, this is my guy. And he just like. <laughs> keeps pulling him into the situation over and over again. That's great. Nice. Pretty fun. Next, we've got prime cut. Uh, Ooh, 
a real nasty 70s gangster flick with Lee Marvin, Gene Hackman. Oh. Uh, so the thing is, it's Gene Hackman is this Kansas City mobster who he runs his uh, prostitution business just like he runs his meat business. Like he's a cattle rancher, too. Oh, boy. So, you know, he runs his auctions where he just has all these drugged ladies in hay bales, you know, in the middle of a a barn (laughs) where men show up and look at them, uh, his high roller guys. And he, like, raises them in orphanages that are all girls and stuff. Just really, uh, his whole thing is he's... Uh, doing the the he he's doing crime the way he does cattle ranching and just very mercenary and stuff. Oh, kind of like doing presidency <clears throat> the way you do business. Right. Uh, same kind of thing. And so Lee Marvin is this Chicago enforcer who's sent to deal with him because he he owed a five hundred grand debt to the Chicago mob. And they send this guy to go deal with him and collect the debt. He comes back as sausages. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's that's the opening of the movie is that guy getting processed and sent back as sausages. And then it's like, OK, Lee Marvin, we need you to go down there and deal with this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, really cool. Uh, what, one of the fun things is that. All of Gene Hackman's dialogue, he's kind of always talking in these meat metaphors and meat business metaphors. It's kind of like um, Jackie Earl Haley in the first season of Preacher. I was just thinking of Preacher, yeah. the the, pre- the guy from Preacher. I couldn't remember his name. Yeah, pretty great, pretty great. Interesting, right on. Uh, next, we've got Sworn to Justice. It's a Cynthia Rothrock picture. Oh, cool. So Cynthia Rothrock, you've seen in Writing Wrongs, probably none of her actual features. Yeah, she was in that. I, I'm sure I've seen her in something else. I believe she is in Samurai Cop 2. Oh, really? OK, cool. she's been in some stuff. Uh, you, you've probably seen her in a few things, but definitely uh, in uh, uh, that one. It's one where she is the lead. It is just a Cynthia Rothrock film. And it's like her doing sort of a dead zone thing. Oh, okay, interesting. Kung fu dead zone. Oh, uh, kung fu dead zone. All right. Of course, you know she yeah. she is a kung fu fighter. So like she's coming home uh, to. She says it's her sister and her sister's kid. It's this whole weird thing where she comes back and she's like, "Don't leave me! Don't leave me!" Crying over the body. I'm like sister, huh? Sister. <laughs> um. But like the the bad guys come after her, like they end up actually being somewhere else in the house through all of this. And then she falls off a balcony and she gets psychic powers so she can get revenge on them, of course, where, you know, she picks up things and can see the whole history of that item and uh, look through it to find the the guys and what they did. Okay, so she finds out the ice is going to break. Yeah. Uh, Sex scenes just going on forever. (laughs) Uh, it's, it's very, very nineties direct to video trash. It's very dumb. I did send you like that last 25 seconds where everything wraps up an incredibly short period of time. (laughs) Spoilers, but like, it's the best part of the movie and it's the part that needs to be seen. Cause like (laughs) she yells at the villain she's like, Oh, you're a murderer. You're an extorter. You do all these bad things. And worst of all, you're a cop. And (laughs) (laughs) 
And her boyfriend, who's this Tai Chi master, who she's been banging the whole movie, that's been her whole side thing. There's a part where she's having sex with them, and then it just, like, has her look directly at the camera and, like, yeah, this is what I'm doing in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he shoots the boyfriend, and he seems to die, and she kicks the bad guy through a skylight, and he falls to his death. And then she's like, are you all right? And her boyfriend has like gotten up in the course of the guy falling through the skylight. And he has just this giant bloody chest wound. He goes, <laughs> never better. <laughs> and the movie's just over. I'm fucking kind of rolled. <laughs> all right. That sounds, <laughs> I love it. It's a pretty bad movie, but man, that the, the ending kind of shot it up uh, at least half a star. Nice. Next, we've got We Await which is the other movie by the director of Red Spirit Lake. Okay. So this is a movie that, uh, as I mentioned, that there's uh, some cock and ball torture. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's kind of this whole thing about this boutique cult. Uh, the the There's this one dude who's always watching all of the Christian programming on like a wall of TVs. And then <laughs> they go out and find people who have like Christian radio stickers on their cars and massacre them. Uh, okay. And it seems not unlike the cult in Mandy, because they have this weird psychedelic green goop that makes them do their crimes. Okay. The, the mysterious crime drug. Yeah. Uh, but there's this part where a dude who's being, who who eventually I think is kidnapped by the cult, he realizes something's going on and he calls this other dude for help. And the this dude is suspended from chains and it cuts down and there's just like a bunch of wrenches hanging off his dong. And there's a lady with a blowtorch heating him up. And it, it's just him on the phone with the guy saying why he's like, no, I, I can't make it. I, I'm kind of busy right now. <laughs> uh, also, there's this part where uh, the, the cult do their green goo and they're saying, we're going to go on a spirit drive. And it's cutaways from them to a matchbox car being menaced by a giant fat guy dressed as Jesus with a cross. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. He's got the stigmata and everything. <laughs> oh, sure. Next up, we've got Santo versus Doctor Death. Oh. It's one of the early, I, I guess, mid-period Santo. Uh, this is from Vinegar Syndrome. It's one that actually has the original language track, which was nice. Oh, thank God, because that's what's been keeping me from watching these. Yeah, I was pretty excited to finally get one that. Uh, has the original language track. Uh, it's, uh, you know, there's speedboat chases. There's uh, a villain who has this death pit that he drops people into. He's, you know, kidnapping people and using them for his cancer research or some shit. I don't know. And only the mass luchador wrestler Santo can stop him. El Enmascarado. Uh, yeah, my favorite thing about these movies is always just Santo walking around doing everyday normal shit, but always with the mask on, like, you know, driving around or <laughs> there, there's a part where he gets out of the shower and he is just howling off, but he has the mask still on. It's fucking tremendous. Oh, yeah. It's a huge thing about, about uh, Mexican wrestler culture. You can't be seen without your mask or your career is over. Oh, yeah. You do not break kayfabe. Uh, and yep. Santo is a fucking legend. 
it does have a lot of extended sequences of just lucha, which you know I, I'm I'm mixed on watching the wrestling over and over, but you know, it's it's a staple. You got to have it. It's kind of part of it's kind of part of the character. I understand. It's, it's necessary. So there yeah. are a few fights. Next, we've got Hanging Heart, which is a weird regional 80s slasher. Kind of like if Knife Plus Heart were an actual early regional 80s slasher. It's very oh, okay. homoerotic. Oh, of course. Uh, synth score, very dreamy and hazy. A lot of it is taking place through dream sequences. And it's this dude who ladies around him just keep getting murdered. Well, what's oh. happening? It's strange. Oh, also, weird. he's got this hot thing for his lawyer, and he has all these sexy dreams about his lawyer. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, and he's also involved in a stage play where we don't really get a gist of what the plot is. It's it's not unlike the Inspector Ike thing, Manny, where uh, it, it just seems like he's this guy who is dealing with repressed sexual feelings because he or homoerotic feelings specifically where he is in bed with this girlfriend and then suddenly he's surrounded by a bunch of uh beefcakes in tidy whities i don't know <laughs> sure deeply homoerotic like very explicitly homoerotic which is super unusual for an early 80s slasher yeah it is actually it's really unusual for anything in the 80s actually yeah, I mean, when I was watching it, I was thinking it was like a 92-era movie, and it was amazing to look back. It's like, this is 83? It looked much more modern. Nice. Next, we've got Ms. Magnificent, uh, a.k.a. Superwoman, although DC threatened to sue them out of existence, so it ended up not being Superwoman, ultimately. You know, as they do. So this is a hardcore film. Uh, I I, I guess you have an account now so it wouldn't be blurred like they have been in the past oh right no um, I do have an account but on this tab it's not logged in so it is still blurred it is blurred so uh, they they were doing an early porn parody of Superman so they did Superwoman okay she flies around and she solves people's problems with sex obviously how else are you going to do it yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, there is a Lois and Clark, but neither of them are Superwoman. They're just damsels in distress. Uh, there is a sequence where they watch the Queen of Outer Space has come to invade, I guess. It's sort of a riff on Superman 2 in that regard, that there's these outer space criminals. I still can't believe that the only Superman movie I've actually seen is the Kevin Spacey Lex Luthor. Well, this one, she has this uh, obsession with a produce truck driver who threw a tomato at her (laughs) one time. She keeps like, oh, put him on the list. We're going to deal with that fellow. Uh, And and she's got a couple alien chicks with her. One of them's red and one of them's yellow. Uh, So that makes the sex scenes kind of weird as well. (laughs) There's a part where she is mad at, I think it's the yellow lady for betraying her in some sense. So uh, she's fisting the girl, uh, like the yellow girl as punishment, but it turns out she's really into it. And then Lois and Clark are in the background chained to a wall, masturbating sort of stuff. (laughs) You really can only do in a porn parody. 
There's also a part where she stops a rapist by grabbing and just twisting his dick a couple times, which is really funny. Again, you can only do it in an actual hardcore. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Holy shit. Uh, And last up is Don't Open Till Christmas. I don't Uh, want to open that one. It it occurred to me that uh, our, not this episode, but the next one will actually be going up Christmas Day. So... I was like, oh, yeah, hey, I should watch something Christmassy in in between. So this one is, I think this was a video nasty as well. It's an actual (laughs) British uh, Christmas slasher movie. But so in in terms of Santa slasher movies, instead of it being uh, someone dressed in a Santa suit slashing people, it's this guy who's going around slashing anyone who's wearing a Santa suit. Oh, the anti-Silent Night, Deadly Night. So it's just a lot of sequences of just like drunk guys stumbling around London in Santa outfits and then getting horribly slashed in some way. It's kind of fun. It's goofball. It's uh, really, really tropey. It's just like, let's throw in all of the slasher tropes that are available to us. Uh, We'll just put them all in there and then have really funny, really over the top gore. Right on. So those are our 12 uh, options for this week. What do you figure? Well, since the next one is going up on Christmas Day, I think we should try to do something Christmassy. So let's do Don't Open Till Christmas. Although there's some great options here, but let's let's do that one this time. You know, there is another uh, movie that we're going to be discussing in a moment, and it might oh, be kind of Christmassy. You've got a good point. Uh, well, so why don't you, you know pick what? a movie that you want to watch? Good point. Good point. Let's do. Well, then I've been wanting to do Santo forever. And now that we actually have one with the proper language track, now's as good a time as any. All right. So Santo versus Dr. Death should be a fun time. So for our first or actually before we get to our first picture, uh, I should say we have a handful of additions to the stacks. All right. What do we got? Of course. So first. Uh, running Out of Time 2. I don't know how they did a sequel because I, I assume that our guy died of cancer at the end. So I don't know what this one's about, but Running Out of Time 2. Well, maybe they didn't run out of time in the first one. Maybe. Next, we've got An American Hippie in Israel. It's an early exploitation movie made in Israel about just this American hippie showing up and just going on weird adventures. I understand there are like robots and uh you know, uh, robot gunman and shit. All sorts yeah. of weird, crazy stuff. Okay, cool. Next, we've got Martha, a picture story. It's a, a documentary about Martha Cooper, who is one of the uh, key people who documented the early graffiti scene in New York. Oh, oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, and I hear it's honestly a real delight that she's just like super charming, very interesting to listen to. And uh, obviously it just has so much cool photography of uh, important work that was not publicly allowed. So it was just constantly being destroyed. Right. Yeah. Uh, next up, we've got passion fever, which is the next one in the Doris Wishman box. Oh, uh, right. I mean, we're not done with her, are we? Oh, heck no. So this one is a movie that she acquired that I think was Greek. It's like a Greek sexploitation movie, but she had no soundtrack. They lost the soundtrack entirely. So she had no (laughs) idea what the movie was about. 
and it's just her dubbing this Greek movie and then adding in her more uh, extra sex scenes, obviously, because that's what you got to do. People rolling around in lingerie. Oh, you gotta. Yeah. Uh, next, Body Fever, which is the next one in the Ray Dennis Steckler box. Uh, uh, this one seems really fucking weird. It's this guy who is... He's a private eye, and he's trying to find this cat burglar. But there's, like, uh, a drug dealer is after them. Okay. Like, the, there's a drug dealer who she robbed who is trying to get her. And, you know, I guess the body fever is from uh, the using heroin or whatever. You know, it's a whole oh, uh, yeah. drug trafficking and human trafficking thing. Right. All right. Uh, next, next is Bodyguard Kiba Two, aka the Karate Killer. Cool. Uh, now, much like Yakuza Wolf Two, Yakuza Wolf Two, my understanding is that they have absolutely no relation to one another, other than also being Sonny Chiba movies using that title and involving him being a bodyguard. <laughs> okay. Well, hey. So this one is again, I, I guess, vaguely based on the manga. This one, he's a bodyguard at, or he's he's a bouncer at a club, but a club where shady stuff is going down. Uh-oh, he probably you know. has a lot of bouncing he's got to do. He's going to have to karate kill. Ooh. Uh, next, our last edition is Moonstalker, another classic regional horror, uh, regional slasher. This one, notorious for having an extremely high body count, but very little blood. Oh, interesting. A uh, guy dressed in this really goofball outfit as the Moonstalker, and it's just him. Uh, just tearing through a whole bunch of campers because he's mad at them for whatever reason, you know, as you yeah. do. It's camp yeah, stalker yeah. thing, you know. Yeah, for sure. They were at the camp one day when, or, you know, this is a camp where a bad thing happened. They're at the camp now, so they yeah. got to die. Camp movie, uh, camp slasher yeah. movie. It, it rates itself. Of course. So, uh, for our main pick, as mentioned earlier, it is Shanna's birthday. And Yay. also, you know, the, the episode that we'll be uh, talking about these movies on is going to be landing on Christmas. So I figured we'd cover something that we've talked about wanting to do that is a Christmas movie. Oh. This Christmas, it's going to be Garbage Day. We're covering <gasps> Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2. Garbage Day! <laughs> oh my god, yes, I've been wanting to watch this movie for years. So you've never actually seen the movie, right? No, I've okay. only seen the Garbage Day scene. Well, you have seen like half of it because you've seen Silent Night, Deadly Night. And like, right. I would say arguably 45% of this movie is just clips from Silent Night, Deadly Night. Oh but no. It having been a year since you've seen it, that will kind of be uh, probably a better way to approach it. Uh, it's a very sunny movie, even though it is, again, set at Christmas. Uh, Eric Freeman, what a star. Uh, eyebrow acting, just unparalleled. <laughs> Should be fun to cover. Oh, I'm excited. Oh, man. All oh, right on. Okay, so uh, I, our movies next week will be Santo versus Dr. Death. And Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2 should be a good time. Oh, man, I'm so looking forward to it. Right on. Oh, yes. 
All right. So any last thoughts before we close for this week? Yeah, it's garbage day. <laughs> uh, all right. Thanks, everyone, so much for listening. And Merry Christmas from the stacks. <laughs>